and we're listening to Gaia. And we saw a flower of life. especially having to do with history and these kinds of things. Uh, a lot of the stuff comes from this man. Now, the things that I'm about to tell you are fantastic by normal ways of thinking. Uh, again, you'll have to see for yourself if what I'm saying is true or not. But uh, this, is, this, this is hieroglyphics here. It's written on papyrus paper, which is supposed to be the first paper he was the person, according to Egypt, that introduced writing to the world. Uh, Egypt supposedly started approximately 500 years later. It's not true. It started simultaneously with Sumerian, and, uh, and that will eventually be, be uh, proven here real soon. Uh, but right now, and I'll explain why there's this 500-year difference at the right moment. But uh, both Sumerian and Egypt started at the same time, and, and they and, uh, but they were started from two different sources. One was called Mommy, and the other was called Daddy. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, which created us as a race before came back to uh, start unfolding who we are. But uh, this whole thing is hieroglyphics. It's a form of writing. Hieroglyphics means holy writing. And it's all hieroglyphics, not just this up here, but this too. This is a symbol which means a very specific person. And in Egypt, his name was Thoth, spelled T-H-O-T-H. And, uh, and he doesn't look like that. He had a bird head on his body. That's the hieroglyphic that we're going to say. Um, he looks very much like, uh, you look Egyptian if you see him. And he's holding two reeds in his hand, which are the papyrus reeds. And he's holding an ark in his hand. Of these, which is uh, a symbol that represents eternal life. In, in any of the hieroglyphics, when a man is holding that or a woman is holding that, it means they've reached immortality. They're no one. No, it's right. Fuck. Uh, the information that you're about, to, most of the information, especially having to do with history and these kinds of things, uh, a lot of them stuff comes from this man. Now, the things that I'm about to tell you are fantastic by normal ways of thinking. Uh, again, you'll have to see for yourself if what I'm saying is true or not. But uh, this, is, this, this is hieroglyphics here. It's written on papyrus paper, which is supposed to be the first paper. He was the person, according to Egypt, that introduced writing to the world. Uh, Egypt supposedly started approximately 500 years later. It's not true. It started simultaneously with Sumerian, and, uh, and that will eventually be, be uh, proven here real soon. Uh, but right now, and I'll explain why there's this 500 year difference at the right moment. But uh, both Sumerian and Egypt started at the same time, and, and, they, and uh, 
but they were started from two different sources. One was called Mommy, and the other was called Daddy. <laughs> uh, that which created us as a race before came back to uh, start unfolding who we are. But um, this whole thing is hieroglyphics. It's a form of writing. Hieroglyphics means holy writing. And it's all hieroglyphics, not just this up here, but this too. This is a symbol which means a very specific person. And in Egypt, his name is Thoth, spelled T-H-O-T-H. And, uh, and he doesn't look like that. He doesn't have a bird head on his body. That's the hieroglyphic that represents that. Um, he looks very much like, uh, you look Egyptian if you see him. And he's holding two reeds in his hand, which are the papyrus reeds. And he's holding an ark in his hand, which is one of these, which is uh, a symbol that represents eternal life. In, in any of the hieroglyphics, when a man is holding that or a woman is holding that, it means they've reached immortality. They're no longer ever going to die. And, uh, and by the way, immortality has a definition. Uh, from our point of view, it does not mean someone who lives in the same body forever and ever and That's called a trap or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. Immortality means that your memory pattern and your consciousness has no more breaking anymore. You have total memory going back to the moment, at least to the moment that you began immortality. And your memory and your consciousness has no break, no matter where you pass through, there's no, no loss. Like right now, we die and we go into, particularly over time in the fourth dimension, we forget that we're here once we're there. And then when we come back this way, we forget that we came from there, we're back, we're here, committing the cycle, forgetting we're trying to know it's accessible, it's, 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 it's magnetically held, so it's, it's possible to, to reach into this possible to, to reach into these ancient memories, old memories, but 
forgetting. But uh, once you reach immortality, there's no more forgetting. So you can leave and you can die at will when you want to. You can leave a body, you can go into other, because as you will go on, you will find that there's other bodies that are more appropriate for higher levels of consciousness than this one. And at some certain points you'll realize that you don't need anybody at all. And, uh, uh, but the consciousness continues on. Uh, but this person here, he considers himself an earth person. Uh, in truth, we were all from somewhere else other than earth. Because earth, you know, uh, earth, we're all from somewhere, not necessarily from earth. And, but he considers himself that because that's where he gained his immortality was here. And, uh, and he gained it during the time of Atlantis, approximately 52,000 years ago. He has remained in the same body for 52,000 years and has walked on Earth for 52,000 years walking around. And he could have left here and gone on with one of the past cycles if he really wanted to. But he chose to stay here very much for you Hindus out there, uh, very much like a Bodhisattva now, where he realized that we were all connected and he decided to stay back even though he could go on and be a teacher and to help the, the lower aspect come up. And uh, he just left though. Uh, he's part of it, did And he made this transition over, over this octave along with 31 other uh, beings. He made the first, first First time ever of this consciousness level, uh, but if we had a higher level. And so, anyway, uh, a lot of this is going to be coming from this one particular person, a great deal of about 50% of the time coming from here. And uh, when I got here, uh, one of the first things I did was connect with him. And, uh, and then at the right time, uh, when I needed to know the histories of the earth, he gave me the histories. He had such a long memory. His mom is 200,000 years old. She's still walking around on the earth. And uh, so he has a long memory pattern going back pretty much to the, to the beginning. Though uh, he says that something happened five and a half million years ago that was really big. could never explain to me exactly what it was, or I couldn't understand what it was. And uh, something big time hit the earth. Because we can't get through to the ancient memories before that. And I don't understand, from my little point of view where I am right now, I don't understand how that's possible. Because once you create an action or something happens, it goes into what's called the Akashic Records. Uh, mathematically, if you strike a bell, uh, that bell will uh, never go away. It, it's called acetonically reaching a limit. Mathematically, it will, it will theoretically exist forever. And, uh, and it should still be attainable uh, if you could track down to the golden mean spiral to the place where it, where it was started. But uh, something happened, must have been really big, and they can't get through it. So none of the ancients can get through this. Uh, uh, they can't consciously go back. They still can't consciously go back. They, I can the first five and a half million years, according to him. Anyway, this is his uh, symbol, which is an ibis bird. And I think they, 
several reasons why they chose that, but one of them is because it hangs out in the reeds all the time. The second time I was in Egypt, uh, I went all over looking for Wings Ibis for something. through all the reeds, and I must have went to five miles worth of reeds. And you never could find one of these guys, and you never did see one anywhere, not even from a distance. I had to go like back to the Albuquerque Zoo. <laughs> and that's an ibis bird right there. They look like little sort of pink, sh sh short storks. Pink. And here's those uh, writing. Uh, <clears throat> this is an actual hieroglyph of him writing on one of the walls in Egypt. And uh, uh, laying down the writing. We didn't need writing until a certain point when the consciousness got to a certain level, then we had to use writing. Before that, we had 100% absolute, total holographic memory. Uh, there was no reason to do it. Anything that any person uh, ever experienced, anybody else could re-experience at any time that they wanted to. And we still have people like that on the earth right now, today. There's whole groups of them. One of them is the aboriginals in Australia. Those people are all linked together in a very specific level of consciousness and uh, they can uh, if one of them were here in this room right now they can go into what they call dream time and come in as a holographic world they can they would be able to walk around in here and look at this happening they could experience the whole five days as many as they wanted to and uh, but it would not be real. It would be like a hologram. It would be like light. It would not be real. It would be... They couldn't, uh, couldn't remove things or use things, but it would be a, a hologram. But it's a, it's a perfect memory. They could smell, they could hear the sounds. You'd just like being here. But it wouldn't be real. So we obviously didn't need writing <laughs> when you got that kind of memory. Uh, it was only when we jumped up to the next level of consciousness, which is where we are now, which is a stepping stone from one unity consciousness, which is the first one, to the next unity consciousness, which we call Christ consciousness. And both of those also have unity consciousness. Only Christ consciousness is memory. Memory is the key to all of this. The memory of a, of a Christ consciousness body is much greater. Uh, if a, if a The aboriginal could come into this room, and they would be remembering it, but from like a, a light field. If the Christ conscious being remembered the room, they would literally be here in time and space. It's a little different. They would disappear. They'd be here. If they remembered an orange, if, a, if, a, if an aboriginal remembers an orange, then he's got an orange, but he can't do anything with it. If a Christ conscious being remembers an orange, he's got a real orange. He can pick it up and peel it. So obviously, whatever his, and his memory extends through all time and space and everything that's ever occurred. So all things are possible. It's a whole other level, and there's levels beyond that. Our memory, we are in a separate state. It's a stepping stone. We contain within us the parameters of Christ consciousness, which I'll geometrically be able to show you right now. But we uh, are not Christ consciousness. And, uh, but it, 
steps into this level of consciousness and he gets out of it as quick as possible to the third way. You have to pass through here. But you don't want to hang out here because we are not a harmonic consciousness and we will destroy any place that we are in. I.e., look at the earth. <laughs> Just give us enough time and we would, we would completely kill this planet. And it's just the way we are because we are not harmonic. I have to explain a lot to explain what that means before we get to that place. And writing is the key. That's how you take someone from the first level of consciousness and get them out into the second level. You, you introduce writing where they no longer access memory directly from within themselves, but they have to go through a symbol or a word or a color or a form or a shape, which is how our memory is. We have to we have to access something. We can't even remember something unless we check. We, we our eyes have to move at very specific angles. Even to remember things, which is which is connected to shape and form, and uh, we don't have that ability. And so, and as soon as you do that, then that is part of there's something else that changes, which is the breathing pattern itself. And we we result in this separate state that we that we see now, where we see ourselves in a body, and everything out there feels to be separate from us. And we think that we can have thoughts and feelings, and that somehow it doesn't affect you. Which is illusion because it's your thoughts. Because our thoughts, our feelings dramatically affect what's happening. But anyway, uh, a lot of these things I'm just lightly touching on, and I'll go over later in detail. Uh, so, writing was the key in all of this. Um, this was his wife, Shizat, who was also one of our teachers. She was the one that brought me here in the first place, about 3,500 years ago. And uh, uh, she's also a recorder, recording from the feminine view rather than the male view. Asked me if I would recommend it. Yeah, sure, man. A little short, though. I'm going to. A guy named Wilf Chipman, who was a Canadian in British Columbia, and told me I have to go there. And I studied alchemy with him. This is years. about thoughts. He and met thoughts in 1972. <laughs> Sure himself he was really good. He really was. He figured out how to take turn mercury into gold, which is just uh, the process itself is not as important as the understanding of how it does that. So you can fly it from this level. It's really the process of how this level of consciousness goes into Christ consciousness. And by understanding how mercury goes into gold or lead in the gold, you can understand how those, that takes place on a human level. The truth is that alchemy is not just that, though it's been centered on that. All chemical levels, all chemical levels whatsoever, and all chemical reactions have their counterparts in human experience. Uh, though 
Canada. And up in this room, he had this, uh, this bubble machine, this machine filled with liquid, and mercury would rise in there, and as it would, it would change different colors. And when it got to the top, it would turn to solid gold and sink back down. So he had these little bubbles coming up and turning into gold, and he'd collect a whole bunch of gold out there. And every day he'd collect these things up. And uh, he built this uh, chem chemistry lab. Now, seriously, you go, you would go into this uh, house, and by the very house, you go into this closet. He got his elevator. He did this incredible space <laughs> But he spent millions of dollars on uh, building this place hidden in the rest of the world. That was huge. It's got the size of this whole room in there, filled with everything you can think of electron like balances to do that, and everything that you could ever need or want. And uh, anyway, I was studying uh, alchemy with him, and about two years down the line, one day, pretty far down the line, we were in Nelson, British Columbia, and I was, uh, he wanted to teach me a particular meditation. And so I sat down and learned this meditation. It was an open night meditation where we were looking into each other's eyes. And as I started doing this meditation, we did it for about an hour or two. I don't know how long it was. In fact, it was a long time. We were staring in. The room had gone away and everything. All there was was a certain size. Like that. When suddenly uh, something happened that never happened before. And, uh, he just disappeared. And at first, I thought it was just a phenomenal effect in my eyes, watching this guy's eyes for so long. And he was gone for a long time. And I, finally, I reached over and I kind of went like this. <laughs> there was nobody there. You know, he was just gone. And it was like, wow. And, you know, but this time, I, my concentration was back in the room. I was really looking at the spot, and there was nobody there. And after a few minutes, this person reappeared there. He and uh, only it wasn't him, it was somebody else. Totally did, I wasn't even close. And he was about 35 years old, this guy was maybe 65 or 70 years old. And, uh, and he wasn't angle white type, he was uh, dark skinned. And, uh, and he looked very Egyptian. He was not very tall, maybe five foot three or four. And he was clean shaven, but with a long beard that was tied in five places. And got down off his chin, real thick, tight down. And uh, he wore very simple tan, long sleeve pants and shirts that looked like they were made out of cotton, real simple clothing. And uh, the thing that got me about this person that grabs my heart was his eyes. He, he didn't have anything going on. Everybody's got stuff going on, you know, so it's kind of hard to look at some people's eyes because there's more stuff going on. If you look either or, you see more and more stuff. But what? But when, uh, yeah, yeah. It was like looking in the, it was just like looking into the eyes of a baby. You know, if you look in baby's eyes, they're just like, oh, you look in there, you know, it's okay to look down in there, it's really okay. And, uh, uh, and that's just how he was. I never ever met an adult like that before. Not even any of my teachers, nobody had ever seen it before. I was really impressed with that. And uh, he told me that there were three atoms missing in the universe, and I didn't know if I knew where they were. <laughs> 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 I, 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 
really know. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me a very interesting experience, which I'm not going to talk about here, but when I got back from that experience, I understood what he meant. And I, I said, okay, I understand that. I told him what, what I had learned, and he just smiled and bowed at me and disappeared again. And a few minutes later, my office teacher came back. And I never knew who that guy was. I was studying with five different teachers at the time, and beside, four other ones besides well, and, uh, and so when the angels who were coming in two and three times a day at that, t at that point, uh, I never asked them who he was, and time went by, and I didn't do it initially, and so as time went by, I just kind of let it go, and he never came up again, and months went by, and then years went by, until finally it was uh, 12 years went by, and one day... Twelve years later, uh, he reappeared, and, uh, and my life changed dramatically. That was on November 1st of 1984, and, uh, which I will tell the story at the right time on what, what happened when he came back in. Santa Field. Okay. Fels came in. And uh, back in, again, he was gone for 12 years. He came back in uh, in 1984, in November 1st. And uh, over a period of several months, uh, he began to teach me or instruct me in sacred geometry. I had been instructed from the angels from the very, very first. It was the angels who actually gave me the breathing that were teaching him. And they taught me a great deal of uh, the sacred geometry. But when he came in, he says, okay, I want to see what you got. And I had to, I just gave it to him, and it's like a little ball of white. And he looked at the whole thing and says, told me that I had, was missing a whole lot. And so uh, he sat me down every day for several months. He would come into the room, sit down with me on a pillow, and, uh, and have me make drawings. And I did this for day after day after day after day after day. And after a long period of time, I came up with this drawing here, which was the end result of maybe three months of work or something. Of course, this is after uh, I was in, uh, already, I'd already been working for uh, 12 years. And, uh, and then I came up with this one. And when he got done, he said this was a very special sacred geometry drawing. It was one of the most important ones. It was the first chromosome in the human body. Each, each of your chromosomes are actually geometrical patterns. And in the geometry of the pattern, which you will understand this when you get done here, in the very geometry of the chromosome is contained the instructions on how not to just make the human body but the entire reality, everything, including the quasars and, and uh, the planets and galaxies and everything, and the plants, all the other life forms, not just human, everything's all in there. Only there are certain levels that are missing. There are certain aspects that are missing. Uh, the first time that consciousness is self-aware, which we were talked about as the Australians, 
they have 42 plus 2 chromosomes. When it jumps up one more, we gain two chromosomes, and we go to 44 plus 2 is, which is what we have. When we go to Christ consciousness, we'll gain two more chromosomes and go to 46 plus 2. And then there will be this state further down the line where we will go to 48 plus 2, and then finally the fifth state of that we pass through, we pass through these five states, uh, will come to 50 plus 2, 52. And... Uh, and by the way, when I first put this out, which was over seven and a half years ago, there was no scientific proof whatsoever that what I was saying had any basis in, in biology at all until in the last couple of years, someone tested the aboriginals in Australia. No one's ever done it. I guess. Nobody ever figured out and found out that they all have 42 plus 2 chromosomes. They don't have 44 plus 2 like that. And since then, they found a couple of tribes in Africa, I understand, that also of the 44 plus 2. Got many different names all around the world and in various places of the universe, but uh, one that he called it was the flower of life. So it's also been called uh, the language of silence and the language of light. Because it is a language, as you're about to see, and it's a language that's hidden underneath. The, like the words that I'm saying right here, a statement that was pretty outrageous from normal ways of thinking. He says, everything is in here. All the laws of physics, all structure, all crystal structure, all biological life forms and their, the very shape of every little detail in their bodies, uh, all planetary bodies, all atomic structure, everything, the entire reality, all, everything that created it was in this one single image. And um, that sounds like a pretty powerful statement uh, until you really begin to see how this works. When he got done teaching all this, he then told me that I would find this image in, in Egypt. And that was, there was two times when I doubted him. And uh, I doubted him on that one because I, I thought I had read just about everything there was in Egypt. And, and that did not look like an Egyptian symbol to me. It looked more Christian or something, but it did not look. Uh, Egyptian and uh, he just said you'll find it in Egypt and, and left and uh, since then by the way we found it all over the world just about everywhere you'll see at the very end of this you'll see some of the places that we found it in but almost everywhere and um, well, two weeks later I'm sitting in Taos, New Mexico in Smith's food store uh, buying my some groceries and uh, Katrina Raphael's friend of mine who wrote, writes books on uh, crystals was in there. And I had taken her to Egypt the first time she went, and she had just come back from Egypt the second time. And, um, and she's a woman who uh, takes a camera and just, yeah. just, just starts, you know, loading it up. And, yeah. and she takes ah, pictures. And she was sitting there at the counter taking 36 out of time and put them on a stack, and she had a stack of pictures a good 12 inches high or so. She was still stacking them up when I came up to her. And we started talking and saying, hello, how are you doing, and that kind of stuff. And she said she just got back from Egypt. And then she says, oh, by the way, she says she, she has an angel that, that uh, has guided her into writing the books that she wrote and 
gave her the information that she wrote, and told her how to get the information to the crystals that she wrote. And uh, I believe that the angel's name is Sorel, I think. But anyway, she said that uh, Sorel told her when she was in Egypt that she was to give me a photograph as soon as she saw me. And I said, oh, okay, give me the photograph. <laughs> and she goes, well, I don't know which one it is. So she turns around away from the things, goes to him and pulls one out at random and hands it to me. And when she did, she handed me this photograph, which was the flower of life on one of the oldest walls in Egypt. That wall is about 6,000 years old. And, uh, and she didn't know, at that time, she didn't know what I was doing. She had no idea. It didn't mean, that thing didn't mean a thing to her at all. But to me, it was like, like wow. <laughs> if you could pick one photograph, and the world, that one, you, you got me pretty good on that one. Later, uh, I went to that place. I went back again. I had to go there. Once I found out it was there, I had to go find out what was there. And I went back again. And where that was located, this is in Abydos here. And, uh, and this is from the dog star. <laughs> Which is serious. <laughs> and... Uh, Behind, this is uh, Seti, the first temple in Abydos, and behind that, there's actually three temples. There's a, Seti, the first temple goes like this. There's three temples. This is where we're looking right at, like this right now. And there's a real ancient, one of the oldest temples in all of Egypt sits back here. It's called the Osiris. It's where Osiris supposedly was put back together. Uh, if you know that story where he was cut into 14 pieces. And uh, and this was like a really holy place to the ancient Egyptians. It was so holy that uh, uh, many of the uh, the, uh, the kings in the, in the olden days uh, didn't have them. Like, like uh, uh, Zorser, for example, who was men, the same person, that he didn't... Uh, bury himself in uh, in Saqqara, which is, he had himself buried here. And a lot of the, uh, the old kings did that. Even though they built these huge things that would look like us where they would do it, they had themselves buried here or around here. Well, so, Sari the First was building this because of this. And as he was building back in here, there was a little hill here. And as he was building into here, he discovered an even more ancient temple that they didn't know about here. And so he turned his temple and made an L-shaped temple, which is the only L-shaped temple in all of Egypt, which is part of the, uh, the proof that he uh, uh, didn't build this. Some people think that he faked this, but uh, uh, there's controversy over whether he did this or not. But this, is, to me, is proof that he did not do it nowhere else has anyone ever made this L? He did the L, so he wouldn't have to go in here and mess up that other one. And there's one thing I want to say before I go into those temples in the back. This is the inside of the city, the first temple. Uh, what they have discovered in Egypt in the last few years, there's writing that goes to within maybe, uh, I don't know, from your knees all the way up to the top of this 35-foot uh, ceiling or whatever that is up there. And even up on on the pillars, way at the very top. And uh, when you when you go to who who's been to Egypt here? 
okay, there's quite a few, about 10, 12 people. You notice that you go to these temples, and the te many, many, many of the uh, figures that are on the wall that are in either release, relief, or whatever, however they're on there, have been chipped away or destroyed. And for a long time, they may have told you, I don't know, that uh, it was because of uh, the Romans and other people who had come in here had destroyed these things. They now know it's not true. They know, they know it's not true beyond any doubt whatsoever, though they didn't know for a long time. Because they had discovered in recent times that the language on the walls was placed there in such a way that there was a time frame. The language that is from about roughly about this high down was speaking of the past. And from about this high up to maybe ten, eight, nine or ten feet, or maybe even twelve feet up the walls, was the present at the time the temple was built. And the stuff that is up further is future, what they think is going to happen in the future. Hmm. And they know, they now know that who did it, because there's only one person who could have known, who did it, or one group of people, and that was the priests themselves that created the temples or took care of the temples, they were the ones that went around and destroyed the writing on the walls because only the writing that was at the present time of the temples was touched. The past and the future was not touched. And somebody just going in there, like the Romans, just to go in there and cause hell, um, would not have known that or could not have picked that out so carefully to just touch the present. Now to them, those what they put on those walls was uh, when they wrote what was going to happen in the future, uh, that was just it. That's what was going to happen. And if you don't believe that they can't see what was going to happen in the future, you're going to see a slide at the very, very end of this. I don't know how it came up on them. For those of you who saw the videos, you probably couldn't see it very clearly or not. But you'll see this one very clearly. There's going to be a slide at the very, very end of here. I'm going to wait till the end. i got to make it dramatic, it's more fun that way. Uh, where uh, and that slide's going to be way up high above one of these pillars, way up there at the very, very top. And it'll be proof that they can clearly see into the future, no doubt. But you have to wait until we get there. This is the Siren Temple, which is this one back here. And it's uh, very, very old. Uh, you're not supposed to go down in there, but I couldn't stand it. So I dropped off this thing and ran inside and took a whole bunch of pictures before they dragged me out of there. And uh, I just had to see in there. The writing is so simple. It's so beautiful. It's just straightforward and clear. There's no junk in the middle. The writing in Egypt and in Samaria, uh, when it came out, was in its absolute, most sophisticated, perfect form and then degenerated after that. Got worse. Came out in its absolute clearest form with uh, no, also with no evolutionary pattern before. It just came out in one day. Just one day, suddenly, it's perfect writing the walls with no, nothing leading up to it. No, uh, no evolution, absolutely zero, both in Samaria and in Egypt. And, uh, and, and then got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And they never could understand that. You'll understand it in just a little bit.
Anyway, uh, they got me out of there, and when they did, I went over to here. And this is the one, that's the back of the, of the say, the first temple. And I'm standing right now here, taking a picture toward here. And this temple was also called the Osirian Temple, and it was dedicated to resurrection, according to the hieroglyphics that are found in here. And uh, they, there's this ramp right here. And it was over here where that flower of life pattern was found. Now, this is the building when they first uh, excavated it. And uh, it was dry in there now. The, the Nile has changed its level and it's filling up with water. And they talk about these three steps where these steps came up this way, a thing in the middle, and the steps go back down again. These three different levels, which are associated with the three levels of, of consciousness. Uh, the 42, the 44, and the 46 that we're going through, which are all associated with resurrection. And this temple, this was done by Lucy de Lubitz, which was Swanner de Lubitz's daughter. She uh, reconstructed the, the temple from a blueprint plan and then discovered that it was based upon the, the sacred geometry of two back-to-back -back pentagons. Uh, she wasn't exactly sure why. All she knew that it was. But in today, uh, when we start talking about the grids, you'll discover that the grid, there's a, the grids I'm talking about, actual electro electromagnetic fields of energy that exist around the Earth. Primarily, uh, these grids exist from about an average of about 60 feet in the Earth average to about 60 miles above the Earth. Every life form on the planet, even if there's only two bugs, has a grid stretching around the whole Earth. And these grids are all superimposed, stretching up for these 60 miles up, which causes like this light blue glow around the Earth. And the, uh, the highest, highest ones are the whales. And then the dolphins come after that, and then the humans. And there's three primary human ones. And uh, the newest one, which was just finished in 1989, after 13,000 years of, of work of constructing it, uh, is based on a stellated dodecahedron. And a stellated, well, we haven't talked about these kind of things yet. This is a dodecahedron. It's 12 pentagons. And this is an icosahedron. And if you notice in here, there's another pentagon and with five, five triangles in it. See these, the similarity between these two shapes? If you were to take this out of there, this is called an icosahedronal cap in sacred geometry. And when you open up a hydrocosahedral cap, it's these two back-to-back -back pentagon, pentagons like this. And, and the icosahedral cap is the key to the Christ consciousness grid. Because if you take a dodecahedron and put one of these in each one of these things here, that's what the primary shape of the Christ consciousness grid is. And, uh, and so it is very uh, clever of them my way of thinking, to uh, base the geometries of this on something that would eventually, that they clearly understood even back then, and were on, in the process even back then of building, uh, and knowing that that uh, someday would be completed. This is the place where it was found, which was right here, and I had a little better camera than Katrina had. And you can see that there's actually two of these side by side. 
here. And I took a, a shot right next to it over here. And though I know you can't see this real well, this one here is called the seed of life, which we're going to look at in just a little bit here. And there's all kinds of patterns all around here, which are all uh, based on this geometry. I put my camera around the side like this over here. I couldn't get around here because there was water and everything in there. Uh, just to see what was over there. And again, this is the back side. You can see this. Uh, I know you can't see these real well, probably from where you are. But these are all symbols that you'll find all over the world in, church, in churches and everywhere. And they're all uh, understandings or, or what stuff that you're going to learn about in this workshop right here was on this wall. It was almost like this was a school that they were uh, teaching this kind of stuff. And after you go to one of these workshops and you go back there and you stand at the Siren Temple and you see all the symbols, you get this weird feeling because it's so familiar. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, holy cow. I mean, it's just like, you know what's on the walls. You know what they're talking about. And it's just, and they're talking about everything. Way over there, and this is with an 80 millimeter lens, way over here, there's this image that you can barely see. That's a, that's a long ways away, actually. And um, that image looks like this. This is what was drawn carefully, though, over on, over on there. And uh, that symbol is the symbol of the first Christians in the world before Christ was ever even born, which are the Coptics, which are also Egyptian. 500 years before uh, Christ was born, they were talking about him coming. And, uh, and this was the symbol that they used for him. And... Here it is, etched in one of the Egyptian walls. That was another symbol for him, which was the triangle with the cross in the middle. Over here. And another symbol for him that the Coptics gave. Oh, wait a minute. This is another one of the, that they etched in one of the Egyptian walls. And notice here is not only the, that symbol, but at the top, the six petals of the Flower of Life, which is the central core. You'll see both these six petals, and sometimes the six petals with these six outer ones around it. And many times you'll see them side by side. You can go into uh, St. Mary's, the, the, uh, once I climbed Mount Sinai, then, to, where Moses uh, had, saw the burning bush, and the bottom of there is, I think it's St. Catherine's, that's what it is. St. Catherine's is a, a, a monastery, it's a Coptic monastery. They won't let you take any photographs. But when you go in there, you'll see the six-petaled pattern on the wall along right next to it with the six-petal pattern with the six around it, showing that they had the understanding of the flower of life in there. And this was the, uh, here's another one. They sometimes would do it like this, where they would take four intersecting circles surrounded by a circle, another symbol for Christ. And 
this was another symbol for Christ. A fish that breathes air. It just happens to have 13 scales on it. And, uh, and you can check this one out as an interesting bit of information. Uh, we, even today, Christ is, you'll see this symbol for Christ. You all are familiar with this one. You know, of the fish. And uh, 200 years after Christ died, the Greek Orthodox Church took over the power of, of, the, of the Catholic Roman Church. And, uh, and at that time, there were many, many changes that were made. And one of them was uh, prior to those 200 years, in the first 200 years before then, Christ was not known just as the fish. Specifically, he was known as the dolphin. Exactly what that connection is, I don't know. But that's for sure. And, uh, and then later... Uh, it became no, but there was this fish connection. Uh, it could very well be that it was because uh, of uh, the time, the timing of Pisces. Before, uh, when Christ came in, he came in right at the beginning of Pisces, and um, before that time was Taurus, and uh, and they worshipped the bull, and uh, the golden bull, and all the stuff that was done on the earth, which which was that time. And, uh, and when Jesus came and became the fish in the Pisces, uh, the bull was thrown down and was no longer uh, the symbol that was being worshipped. So, again, I mean, this first whole day. Since really the dawning of, of the age of Aquarius, age of Aquarius, Aquarius. This is a flower of life, and I want to show you a relationship in the flower of life. The flower, uh, uh, it was called the flower of life because the circles in here surrounded by two and if you were to take out the center circle here and the six around the center can you understand that this one and then there is the hologram there's a center of one two three four five six those six circles around there if you take that out like this everybody get that okay. this is called the seed of life they felt that it was the seed. Now that was another one that was, I told you, it was on that wall right next to the other one, right next to the flower. And the, uh, there's another image here that you're, some of you are familiar with probably. 
which is called the Tree of Life. And um, there are 10 spheres connected by these lines. Now, originally, there were 12 spheres. Um, no doubt about that. Uh, because the oldest known tree of life is not Hebrew, but is Egyptian. And they're on three pillars at Luxor and three pillars at Karnak, Egypt, with the tree of life etched right on there, only with one sphere above and one sphere below. One up there and one below, up here. And, uh, but the Jews and the e Egyptians had a lot in common. They lived together for a long time. So I'm sure they were interconnected on this belief. And um, the Kabbalah, by the way, which is the main form that this, you will find this through today, which we tend to believe is, is, is Hebrew, um, has only been out, as my understanding, at least in present day time, for 1,700 years. These uh, pillars go way back thousands of years, at least almost 2,000 years before that. And um, now here's the thing. If you were to take the seed of life, if this is truly the seed and this image that I was just referring to, how a tree goes to a flower, to a, to a fruit, to a seed, and back to a tree, if that image is, is, that kind of metaphor is contained in the geometry, then the tree would have to be contained in the seed. Do you understand? In there would have to be, in the seed would have to be the tree. That would have to be the source of the tree of the Kabbalah, the tree of life. And so if it's true, then those two should superimpose geometrically. This should fit right over the top. And when you do it, you'll see that it fits just like a key, perfectly. Absolutely. Nothing left over. It's one point there, 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 here, 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 there, there, and the tenth one's down here, exactly on the two rims. If you fit 12, the 12 one that we found on the other one, the 12 one will fit right on the flower. Where exactly, where the 11th and the 12th one will fit precisely above and below, delineating where the flower is. about we're gonna it's gonna get a lot more hardcore logical preciseness is gonna about to enter into all of this a little bit. These are wheels that are found in the ceilings of Egypt in tombs in a in the really old, old, oldest of all the tombs. Nobody knows, no no Egyptian archaeologist on the planet that I know of knows what they are. And I've talked to many of the world famous Egyptian archaeologists and uh, they don't know. They don't know what they are, or why they are, or what they mean. But to me, I know where they came from. Uh, Thoth showed me where they, where they, how they were brought, extracted, and what they are. And uh, and slowly over time, I'll show you. But they're proof that the Egyptians just didn't know about the pattern of the flower of life, and didn't know about all this knowledge that we're about to tell you. They're proof because in order to get to those wheels. 
you've got to go deep, 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 deep into the sacred geometry until you get way down in there, and then you'll find these wheels that will come out, and they're these guys. And they're the key to the harmonics of music, but they're also the key to the harmonics of the dimensional levels. And what you see here, these are always on the ceiling, up in the sky. They're surrounded by the stars. And here, you, though you can't see this, is a precession of, of people with animal heads walking in a straight line. If this was a floor, it'd be about like that. And they have these red-orange ovals over their heads, which are, according to Thoth, are called, used to be called uh, the egg of metamorphosis. And you'll understand what, why metamorphosis is involved in this at one point. And they're walking along here, and then suddenly there's a 90-degree turn, 90 degrees, and they're now walking this way, into the stars, and he's uh, putting a sphere through the bull, which shows you how old this is, going back into the time of Taurus. And, uh, uh, and I'm going to have to leave these for a while to explain what they are, because we have a lot to lay down before this will all make sense. But uh, these wheels are, they're maps. They're, they're telling you exactly where they went, precisely where, they, where in the dimensional levels and what they were doing and where they were going. This is Leonardo's drawing. Again, this is all introduction still. It's Leonardo's drawing uh, with a little bit of me on there. <laughs> I drew this uh, person sitting down here and some of this other stuff around there. This is going to be a very important drawing in what we're doing. Uh, though sacred geometry, as you will see, can discuss any subject whatsoever, it, there is no limit on what subject it cannot discuss and describe in detail. Uh, I'm going to have blinders on as I discuss sacred geometry. I'm only interested in one thing here. The purpose of this workshop is ascension which is consciously moving from one world to another, bringing your body with you, which is a little different than resurrection, which is dying, and then afterwards, while you pass through the bardo, to consciously pass through the great void, uh, and then reconstruct your body in that way, which is another possibility. It's just as noble as this one, but there's just another possibility is all. And, uh, and so... Um, in this one here, we are going to be concerned with ascension in the vehicle of ascension called the Merkaba. And, and the understanding of the Merkaba comes from the remembering of the crystalline energy field that's around the body. This field, and we've had instruments that can detect this field very carefully. of the flower of life secret of the flower of life exclamation point hashtag Egypt Gaia show we're learning about the secret of the flower of life on Gaia here below one up there and one below up here and uh but the Jews and the Egyptians had a lot in common. They lived together for a long time. So I'm sure they were interconnected on this belief. And um, the Kabbalah, by the way, which is the main form that this, you will find 
is true today, which we tend to believe is, is, is Hebrew, um, has only been out, as my understanding, at least in present day time, for 1700 years. Let me take a picture. A guy named Wilf Chipman, who was a Canadian in British Columbia, and told me I had to go there. And I studied alchemy with him. This is about thoughts. He met thoughts in 
under the top of his chin. Real thick, tight down. And uh, he wore a very simple tan, what well, long sleeve pants and shirts, but they looked like they were made out of cotton. Real simple clothing. And uh, the thing that got me about this person that just grasped my heart was his eyes. Everybody's got stuff going on, you know, so it's kind of hard when some people's eyes says there's more stuff going on. As you look either or, you see more and more stuff. But what? But when, uh, you know what I mean? It was like looking in, it was just like looking in the eyes of a baby. You know, if you look in baby's eyes, they're like, oh, you look in there, you know, it's okay to look down in there, it's really okay. And, uh, uh, and that's just how he was. I never ever met an adult like that before. Not even any of my teachers, nobody had ever seen it before. And I was really impressed with that. And uh, he told me that there were three atoms missing in the universe, and I didn't know if I knew where they were. I don't really know. So he gave me a very interesting experience, which I'm not going to talk about here, but when I got back from that experience, I understood what he meant. I told him what, he, what I had learned, and he just smiled and bowed at me and disappeared again. And a few minutes later, out this teacher came back. And I never knew who that guy was. I was studying with five different teachers at the time, and besides, four other ones besides Will. And, uh, and so when the angels who were coming in two and three times a day at that, at that point, uh, I never asked them who he was. And time went by, and I didn't do it initially, and so as time went by, I just kind of let it go, and he never came up again, and months went by, and then years went by, until finally it was uh, 12 years went by, and one day, 12 years later, uh, he reappeared, and, uh, and my life changed dramatically. That was on November 1st of 1984. And, uh, which I will tell the story at the right time about what happened when he came back in. Santa Field. Okay. Those came in and uh, back in. Again, he was gone for 12 years. He came back in uh, in 1984, in November 1st. And uh, over a period of several months, uh, he began to teach me or instruct me in sacred geometry. I had been instructed from the angels from the very, very first. It was the angels who actually gave me the breathing that were teaching him. And they taught me a great deal of uh, the sacred geometry. But when he came in, he says, okay, I want to see what you got. And I had to, I just gave it to him, and it's like a little ball of white and he looked at the whole thing and says, told me that I had, was missing a whole lot. And so uh, he sat me down every day for several months. He would come into the room, sit down with me on a pillow, and, uh, and have me make drawings. And I did this for day after day after day after day after day. And after a long period of time, I came up with this drawing here which was the end result of maybe three months of work or something. Of course, this is after uh, 
was in uh, already. I'd already been working for uh, 12 years, and uh, and then I came up with this one. And when he got done, he said this was a very special sacred geometry drawing. It was one of the most important ones. It was the first chromosome in the human body. Each, each of your chromosomes are actually geometrical patterns. And in the geometry of the pattern, which you will understand this when you get done here, in the very geometry of the chromosome is contained the instructions on how not to just make the human body, but the entire reality, everything, including the quasars and, and uh, the planets and galaxies and everything. And the plants, all the other life forms, not just human, everything's all in there. Only there are certain levels that are missing. There are certain aspects that are missing. Uh, the first time that consciousness is self-aware, which we talked about as the Australians, they have 42 plus 2 chromosomes. When it jumps up one more, we gain two chromosomes, and we go to 44 plus 2 is what, is what we have. When we go to Christ consciousness, we'll gain two more chromosomes and go to 46 plus 2. And then there will be this state further down the line where we will go to 48 plus 2, and then finally the fifth state of that we pass through, we pass through these five states, uh, we'll come to 50 plus 2, 52. And, uh, and by the way, when I first put this out, which was over seven and a half years ago, there was no scientific proof whatsoever that what I was saying had any basis in, in biology at all. <laughs> until in the last couple of years, someone tested the aboriginals in Australia. No one's ever done it. I guess. Nobody ever figured out and found out that they all have 42 plus 2 chromosomes. They don't have 44 plus 2, I guess. And since then, they found a couple tribes in Africa, I understand, that also have the 44 plus 2. Got many different names all around the world and in various places of the universe, but uh, one that he called it was the flower of life. So it's also been called uh, the language of silence and the language of light. Because it is a language, as you're about to see, and it's a language that's hidden underneath. Um, the, like the words that I'm saying right here. A statement that was pretty outrageous from normal ways of thinking. He says, everything is in here. All the laws of physics, all structure, all crystal structure, all biological life forms and their, the very shape of every little detail in their bodies, uh, all planetary bodies, all atomic structure, everything, the entire reality, all everything that created it was in this one single image. And um, that sounds like a pretty powerful statement uh, until you really begin to see how this works. When he got done teaching all this, he then told me that I would find this image in, in Egypt. And that was, there was two times when I doubted him. And uh, I doubted him on that one because I, I thought I had read just about everything there was in Egypt. And, and that did not look like an Egyptian symbol to me. It looked more Christian or something, but it did not look uh, Egyptian. And uh, he just said, you'll find it in Egypt and, and left. And uh, since then, by the way, we found it all over the world, just about everywhere. You'll see at the very end of this, you'll see 
some of the places that we found it in, but almost everywhere. And um, well, two weeks later, I'm sitting in Taos, New Mexico, in Smith's food store, uh, buying my some groceries, and uh, Katrina Raphael, this friend of mine who wrote, writes books on uh, crystals, was in there. And I had taken her to Egypt the first time she went, and she had just come back from Egypt the second time. And, um, and she's a woman who uh, takes a camera and just, just starts, you know, loading it up. And, and she takes pictures. And she was sitting there at the counter, taking 36 out of time and put them on a stack. And she had a stack of pictures, a good 12 inches high or so. She was still stacking them up when I came up to her. And we started talking and saying hello, how are you doing, that kind of stuff. And she said she just got back from Egypt. And then she says, oh, by the way, she says, she, she has an angel that, that uh, has guided her into writing the books that she wrote and gave her the information that she wrote and told her how to get the information through the crystals that she wrote. And uh, I believe that the angel's name is Sorel, I think. But anyway, she said that uh, Sorel told her when she was in Egypt that she was to give me a photograph as soon as she saw me. And I said, oh, okay, give me the photograph. <laughs> and she goes, well, I don't know which one it is. So she turns around away from the things, goes to them and pulls one out at random and hands it to me. And when she did, she handed me this photograph, which was the flower of life on one of the oldest walls in Egypt. That wall is about 6,000 years old. And, uh, and she didn't know, at that time, she didn't know what I was doing. She had no idea. It didn't mean, that thing didn't mean a thing to her at all. But to me, it was like, like, wow. <laughs> if you could pick one photograph, and no we're all that one, you, you got me pretty good on that one. Later, uh, I went to that place. I went back again. I had to go there. Once I found out it was there, I had to go find out what was there. And I went back again. And where that was located, this is in Abydos here. And, uh, and this is from the dog star here. <laughs> Which is serious. <laughs> and uh, behind, this is uh, Seti the first temple in Abydos, and behind that, there's actually three temples. There's a Seti the first temple goes like this. There's three temples. This is where we're looking right at, like this right now. And there's a real ancient, one of the oldest temples in all of Egypt sits back here. It's called the Osiris. It's where Osiris supposedly was put back together. Uh, if you know that story where he was cut into 14 pieces. And, uh, and this was like a really holy place to the ancient Egyptians. It was so holy that uh, uh, many of the, uh, the, uh, the kings... In the, in the olden days, uh, didn't have the, like, like uh, uh, Zorser, for example, who was men, the same person, that he didn't uh, bury himself in, uh, in Saqqara, which is, he had himself buried here. And a lot of the, uh, the old kings did that, even though they built these huge things that would look like us where they would do it. They had themselves buried here or around here. Well, so Sari the First was building this because of this. And as he was building back in here, there was a little hill here. 
as he was building in here, he discovered an even more ancient temple that they didn't know about here. And so he turned his temple and made an L-shaped temple, which is the only L-shaped temple in all of Egypt, which is part of the, uh, the proof that he uh, uh, didn't build this. Some people think that he faked this. But uh, uh, there's controversy over whether he did this or not. But this, is, to me, is proof that he did not do it. Nowhere else has anyone ever made this L. He did the L so he wouldn't have to go in here and mess up that other one. And there's one thing I want to say before I go into those temples in the back. This is the inside of the city of the first temple. Uh, what they have discovered in Egypt in the last few years, there's writing that goes to within maybe... Uh, I don't know, that from your knees all the way up to the top of this 35-foot uh, ceiling or whatever that is up there, and even up on, on the pillars way at the very top. And uh, when, you, when you go to, who, who's been to Egypt here? Okay, there's quite a few, about 10, 12 people. You notice that you go to these temples, and the temp many, many, many of the figures that are on the wall that are in the release, relief, or whatever, however they're on there, have been chipped away or destroyed. And for a long time, they may have told you, I don't know, that uh, it was because of uh, the Romans and other people who had come in there had destroyed these things. They now know it's not true. They know, they know it's not true beyond any doubt whatsoever, though they didn't know for a long time. Because they've discovered in recent times that the language on the walls was placed there in such a way that there was a time frame. The language that is from about, roughly about this high down, was speaking of the past. And from about this high up to maybe uh, 10, 8, 9 or 10 feet, or maybe even 12 feet up the walls, was the present at the time the temple was built. And the stuff that is up further is future, what they think is going to happen in the future. Hmm. And they know, they now know that who did it, because there's only one person who could have known, who did it, or one group of people, and that was the priests themselves that created the temples or took care of the temples. They were the ones that went around and destroyed the writing on the walls, because only the writing that was of the present time of the temples was touched. The past and the future was not touched. And somebody just going in there, like the Romans, just to go in there and cause hell, um, would not have known that or could not have uh, picked that out so carefully to just touch the prison. Now, to them, those what they put on those walls was, uh, when they wrote what was going to happen in the future, uh, that was just it. That's what was going to happen. And... If you don't believe that they can't see what was going to happen in the future, you're going to see a slide at the very, very end of this. I don't know how it came up on them. For those of you who saw the videos, you probably couldn't see it very clearly or not. But you'll see this one very clearly. There's going to be a slide at the very, very end of here. I'm going to wait till the end. I'm going to make it dramatic. It's more fun that way. Where uh, and that slide's going to be way up high above one of these pillars, way up there at the very, very top. And it'll be proof that they could clearly see into the future, no doubt. But you have to wait and get there. This is the Siren Temple, which is this one back here. And it's uh, very, very old. 
you're not supposed to go down in there, but I couldn't stand it. So I dropped off this thing and ran inside and took a whole bunch of pictures before they dragged me out of there. <laughs> and uh, I just had to see in there. The writing is so simple. It's so beautiful. It's just straightforward and clear. There's no junk in the middle. The writing in Egypt and in Samaria, uh, when it came out, was in its absolute, most sophisticated, perfect form, and then degenerated after that. Got worse. Came out in its absolute clearest form, with uh, no, also with no evolutionary pattern before. It just came out in one day. Just one day, suddenly, it's perfect writing the walls, with no, nothing leading up to it. No, uh, no evolution. Absolutely zero, both in Samaria and in Egypt. And, uh, and, and then got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And they never could understand that. You'll understand it in just a little bit. Anyway, uh, they got me out of there. And when they did, I went over to here. And this is the one, that's the back of the, of the say, the first temple. And I'm standing right now here, taking a picture toward here. And this temple was also called the Siren Temple. And it was dedicated to resurrection, according to the hieroglyphics that are found in here. And uh, they, there's this ramp right here. And it was over here where that flower of life pattern was found. Now, this is the building when they first uh, excavated it. And uh, it was dry in there now. The, the Nile has changed its level and it's filling up with water. And they talk about these three steps, where these steps came up this way, thing in the middle, and the steps go back down again. These three different levels, which are associated with the three levels of, of consciousness, uh, the 42, the 44, and the 46, that we're going through, which are all associated with resurrection. And this temple, this was done by Lucy de Lubitz, which was Swallowed de Lubitz's daughter. She uh, reconstructed the, the temple from a blueprint plan, and then discovered that it was based upon the, the sacred geometry of two back-to-back -back pentagons. Uh, she wasn't exactly sure why, all she knew that it was. But in today, uh, when we start talking about the grids, you'll discover that the grid, there's a, the grids I'm talking about, actual electro electromagnetic fields of energy that exist around the Earth, primarily uh, these grids exist from about an average of about 60 feet in the Earth average to about 60 miles above the Earth. Every life form on the planet, even if there's only two bugs, has a grid stretching around the whole Earth. And these grids are all superimposed, stretching up for these 60 miles up, which causes like this light blue glow around the Earth. And the, uh, the highest, highest ones are the whales. And then the dolphins come after that, and then the humans. And there's three primary human ones. And uh, the newest one, which was just finished in 1989, after 13,000 years of, of work of constructing it, uh, is based on a stellated dodecahedron. And a stellated, well, we haven't talked about these kind of things yet. This is a dodecahedron. It's 12 pentagons. And this is an icosahedron, and if you notice in here, there's another pentagon and with five, five triangles in it. 
see this, the similarity between these two shapes? If you were to take this out of there, this is called an icosahedral cap in sacred geometry. And when you open up a icosahedral cap, it's these two back-to-back pentagon, pentagons like this. And, and the icosahedral cap is the key to the Christ consciousness grid. Because if you take a dodecahedron and put one of these in each one of these things here, that's what the primary shape of the Christ consciousness grid is. And, uh, and so it was very uh, clever of them, from my way of thinking, to uh, base the geometries of this on something that would eventually, that they clearly understood even back then, and were on, in the process, even back then, of building, uh, and knowing that that uh, someday would be completed. This is the place where it was found, which was right here. And I had a little better camera than Katrina had. And you can see that there's actually two of these side by side here. And I took a, a shot right next to it over here. And though I know you can't see this real well, this one here is called the seed of life, which we're going to look at in just a little bit here. And there's all kinds of patterns all around here, which are all uh, based on this geometry. I put my camera around the side like this over here. I couldn't get around here because there was water and everything in there. Uh, just to see what was over there. And again, this is the back side. You can see this. Um, I know you can't see these real well, probably from where you are, but these are all symbols that you'll find all over the world in, church, in churches and everywhere. And they're all uh, understandings or, or what stuff that you're going to learn about in this workshop right here was on this wall. It was almost like this was a school that they were uh, teaching this kind of stuff. And after you go to one of these workshops and you go back there and you stand at the Siren Temple and you see all the symbols, you get this weird feeling because it's so familiar. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, holy cow. I mean, it's just like, you know what's on the walls. You know what they're talking about. Just, and they're talking about everything. Way over there, and this is with an 80 millimeter lens, way over here, there's this image which you can barely see. That's a, that's a long ways away, actually. And um, that image looks like this. This is what was drawn carefully, though, over on, over on there. And uh, that symbol is the symbol of the first Christians in the world before Christ was ever even born, which are the Coptics, which are also Egyptian. 500 years before uh, Christ was born, they were talking about him coming. And, uh, and this was the symbol that they used for him. And... Here it is etched in one of the Egyptian walls. That was another symbol for him, which was the triangle with the cross in the middle. Over here. And another symbol for him that the Coptics gave. Oh, wait a minute. This is another one that they etched in one of the Egyptian walls. 
And notice here is not only the that symbol, but at the top, six petals of the flower of life, which is the central core. You'll see both these six petals, and sometimes the six petals with these six outer ones around it. And many times you'll see them side by side. You can go into uh, St. Mary's, the, the, uh, once I climbed Mount Sinai, then, where Moses uh, had, saw the burning bush, and the bottom of there is, I think it's St. Catherine's, that's what it is. St. Catherine's is a, a monastery, it's a Coptic monastery. They won't let you take any photographs. But when you go in there, you'll see the six-petaled pattern on the wall along right next to it with the six-petal pattern with the six around it, showing that they had the understanding of the, of the flower of life in there. And this was the, uh, here's another one. They sometimes would do it like this, where they would take four intersecting circles surrounded by a circle, another symbol for Christ. And this was another symbol for Christ. A fish that breathes air. It just happens to have 13 scales on it. And, uh, and you can check this one out as an interesting bit of information. Uh, we, even today, Christ is, you'll see this symbol for Christ. You all are familiar with this one. You know, of the fish. And uh, 200 years after Christ died, the Greek Orthodox Church took over the power of, of, the, of the Catholic Roman Church. And, uh, and at that time, there were many, many changes that were made. And one of them was uh, prior to those 200 years, in the first 200 years before then, Christ was not known just as the fish. Specifically, he was known as the dolphin. Exactly what that connection is, I don't know. But that's for sure. And, uh, and then later, uh, it became known. But there was this fish connection. Uh, it could very well be that it was because uh, of uh, the time, the timing of Pisces. Before, uh, when Christ came in, he came in right at the beginning of Pisces. And um, before that time was Taurus, and uh, and they worshipped the bull, and uh, the golden bull, and all the stuff that was done on the earth, which which was that time, and uh, and when Jesus came and became the fish in the Pisces, uh, the bull was thrown down and was no longer uh, the symbol that was being worshipped. So. Again, I mean, this first whole day. Since really the dawning of the age with, with of Aquarius, the age of Aquarius, the Aquarius, this is a Aquarius. And I want to show you a relationship in the flower of life. The flower, um, uh, it was called the flower of life because.
and then inside of the fruit is the seed that contains the image of the whole tree. And so there is this cycle pattern of the tree to a flower to a fruit to a seed to a tree again. It goes around this particular kind of pattern. And they felt that sacred geometry had that same kind of nature to it. And to show that, this was the flower here. There's 19 circles in here surrounded by two. And if you were to take out the center circle here and the six around the center, can you understand that? This one, and then there is... The hologram. There's a center of one, two, three, four, five, six. Those six circles around there. If you take that out like this... Everybody get that? Okay. This is called the seed of life. They felt that it was the seed. Now that was another one that was, I told you, it was on that wall right next to the other one, right next to the flower. And the... Uh, there's another image here that you're, some of you are familiar with probably, which is called the Tree of Life. And um, there are 10 spheres connected by these lines. Now, originally, there were 12 spheres. Um, no doubt about that, uh, because the oldest known Tree of Life is not Hebrew but is Egyptian, and they're on three pillars at Luxor and three pillars at Karnak, Egypt, with the Tree of Life etched right on there, only with one sphere above and one sphere below. One up there and one below, up here. And, uh, but the Jews and the e Egyptians had a lot in common. They lived together for a long time, so I'm sure they were interconnected on this belief. And, um, the Kabbalah, by the way, which is the main form that this you will find this through today, which we tend to believe is is, is Hebrew, um, has only been out, as my understanding, at least in present day time, for 1,700 years. These uh, pillars go way back thousands of at least almost 2,000 years before that. And um, now here's the thing: if you were to take the seed of life. If this is truly the seed and this image that I was just referring to, how a tree goes to a flower, to a, to a fruit, to a seed, and back to a tree, if that image is, is, that kind of metaphor is contained in the geometry, then the tree would have to be contained in the seed. Do you understand? In there would have to be, in the seed would have to be the tree. That would have to be the source of the tree, of the Kabbalah, the tree of life. And so if it's true, then those two should superimpose geometrically. This should fit right over the top. And when you do it, you'll see that it fits just like a key, perfectly. Absolutely. Nothing left over. It's one point there, 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 here, 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 there, here, and the tenth one's down here. Exactly on the two rims. If you fit 12, the 12 one that we found on the other one, the 12 one will fit right on the flower. Where exactly, where the 11th and the 12th one will fit precisely above and below, delineating where the flower is.
get a feel. This is just a real gentle feel of what sacred geometry is about. We're gonna, it's going to get a lot more hardcore, logical, preciseness is going to about to enter into all of this a little bit. These are wheels that are found on the ceilings in Egypt in tombs in, a, in the really old, old, oldest of all the tombs. Nobody knows, no, ar no Egyptian archaeologist on the planet that I know of knows what they are. And I've talked to many of the world-famous Egyptian archaeologists, and uh, they don't know. They don't know what they are, or why they are, or what they mean. But to me, I know where they came from. Uh, Thoth showed me where they, where they, how they were brought, extracted, and what they are. And, uh, and slowly over time, I'll show you. But they're proof that the Egyptians just didn't know about the pattern of the flower of life, and didn't know about all this knowledge that we're about to tell you. They're proof because in order to get to those wheels. You've got to go deep, 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 deep into the sacred geometry until you get way down in there, and then you'll find these wheels that will come out, and they're these guys. And they're the key to the harmonics of music, but they're also the key to the harmonics of the dimensional levels. And what you see here, these are always on the ceiling, up in the sky. They're surrounded by the stars. And here, you, though you can't see this, is a precession of, of people with animal heads walking in a straight line. If this was a floor, it'd be about like that. And they have these red-orange ovals over their heads, which are, according to Thoth, are called, used to be called uh, the egg of metamorphosis. And you'll understand what, why metamorphosis is involved in this at one point. And they're walking along here, and then suddenly there's a 90-degree turn. 90 degrees, and they're now walking this way into the stars, and he's uh, putting a sphere through the bull, which shows you how old this is, going back into the time of Taurus. And, uh, uh, and I'm going to have to leave these for a while to explain what they are, because we have a lot to lay down before this will all make sense. But uh, these wheels are... They're maps. They are, they're telling you exactly where they went, precisely where they, where in the dimensional levels and what they were doing and where they were going. This is Leonardo's drawing. Again, this is all introduction still. This is Leonardo's drawing uh, with a little bit of me on there. <laughs> I drew this uh, person sitting down here and some of this other stuff around there. This is going to be a very important drawing in what we're doing. Uh, though sacred geometry, as you will see, can discuss any subject whatsoever, it, there is no limit on what subject it cannot discuss and describe in detail. Uh, I'm going to have blinders on as I discuss sacred geometry. I'm only interested in one thing here. The purpose of this workshop is ascension which is consciously moving from one world to another, bringing your body with you, which is a little different than resurrection, which is dying, and then afterwards, while you pass through the bardo, to consciously pass through the great void, uh, and then reconstruct your body in that way, which is another possibility. It's just as noble as this one, but there's just another possibility is all. And, uh, and so... Uh, in this one here, we are going to be concerned with ascension in the vehicle of ascension called the Merkaba. 
and and the understanding of the Merkaba comes from the remembering of the crystalline energy field that's around the body. This field, and we've had instruments that can detect this field very carefully. Here, uh, secret of the flower of life. Secret of the flower of life! Exclamation point. Hashtag Egypt Gaia show. We're learning about the secret of the flower of life on Gaia. Here below. One up there and one below. Up here. And, uh, but the Jews and the e Egyptians had a lot in common. They lived together for a long time. So I'm sure they were interconnected on this belief. Hi there, welcome back. And we're going to listen to a little Gaia this afternoon. Let's see, what shall we search for? Something mind blowing. Mm. How about Thoth? Architect of Atlantis. Thanks for 288k. Even though it's all law enforcement, without a surveillance, I mean, surveilling me without a warrant. What are the teachings of Todd? I am your host and guide, Matias Stefano. In this episode, we will explore the keys to build realities. 12,000 years ago, when I was born in the River Nile, we were taught about our ancestors being the builders of our realities. They were our grandfathers, grandmothers, and they used to be for us like those blue ones coming from the skies and bringing information to earth. So we learn from them about the realities, about heavens, about, about the construction of earth and why we were here in this reality. For us, the most important ancestor that we had for our times, the, the mentor of our civilization of Kem in Egypt, was the one we call Jahut. Jahut was the name that represented the one who was balanced through time. Jahut was a person. He was born, first of all, in Middle East, and he was sent to Atlantis. Next for a quarter mil.
What are the teachings of Thoth? What are the teachings of Thoth? I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. Stefano. In this episode, In we will explore the keys to build realities. 12,000 years ago, when I was born in the River Nile, we were taught about our ancestors being the builders of our realities. They were our grandfathers, grandmothers, and they used to be for us like those blue ones coming from the skies and bringing information to Earth. So we learn from them about the realities, about heavens, about, about the construction of Earth, and why we were here in this reality. For us, the most important ancestor that we had for our times, the, the mentor of our civilization, of Kem, in Egypt, was the one we call Jahut. Jahut was the name that represented the one who was balanced through time. Jahut was a person. He was born first of all in Middle East and he was sent to Atlantis to organize the whole civilization. He was part of one of the 12 families and he kind of was one of the rulers of the system at that time. Even though the system was not ruled by kings or by men gods, the 12 families were like this system of wise people to whom all humans would ask what to do. And he was the one that represented the most important of all the other wise people of the 12 families that everyone in the families would ask to him what to do and how to construct, build, transform our realities. The first priests and priestesses used to teach everything through stones, crystals and vibration. But when we began to be disconnected to it, we needed to print it, to write it. And that's why we started to use papyrus to write down all the information and to use hieroglyphics, hieratics, letters and sounds imprinted on paper and then in rock. This created the, the idea that Yahud was still alive in those who learned how to write, how to transcend information through the words. And because of the papyrus was in the river and we harvest this papyrus to write the knowledge, we related that the bird, the ibis, the bird that was taking care of the papyrus in the river was the symbol that connect the wisdom of Jahut. And that's why all the animalistic people, the, the ones that believed in the nature gods, they start to relate the knowledge of, of Jahud with the Ibis, and that's why we had this god with the Ibis head. In Egypt time, we started to call Jahud like Thoth, and then for Greek people, they call it Hermes. So the symbols of Hermes was still alive, and is still alive in medicine, because he was the first one to help us understand that the doors of realities were in our bodies, organs, blood, DNA, and that is why the symbol of Hermes was the snake. In ancient times, the keeper of the wisdom was the snake. 
So the snake has the two tools, the positive and the negative, that could kill us or could heal us. So that's why the medicians, the physicians, they used to use this stick to hold the snake and to take the venom so they could make poisons to heal. So that's why the symbol of the snake around this caduceum that represented all the chakras and the wisdom of every level of consciousness was the symbol to create the poisons to heal the humanity, to heal the bodies, to, so we could open the portals of wisdom within ourselves. And that's why the Caduceum is still the symbol of Hermes and the symbol of medicine in every culture. Jahud was the representative of all the builders of realities on Earth. He was the human that descended directly from the Blue Ones, from the Arcturians, and he was one of the priests that could live the most. That whoever was in the temples, whoever was uh, creating our, our civilization in Atlantean times, in Kim time, everyone would know him because he was the one preparing everyone through hundreds of years. That is why when we as Hephian people, the Atlantean people, we understood our purpose on Earth, he was the one chosen to build the network physically so we could download all the information from the highest spheres here on this planet. Jahud, for our history, he was like this mentor that designed our country, that designed our way of thinking that he was the, the guide that told us how to create what for all of us in that moment was our daily life. He was the guide of the families coming through the Mediterranean Sea to live in Egypt, to live in the Nile. And he was kind of the one that decided the role and the place that every one of us would have along the Nile. His brothers and sisters were, were living all around the River Nile from the very south to the north and they would keep the idea that he built about how to create a proper society in order to contact the higher levels of consciousness in different spheres, in different dimensions. He kind of made this plan that we in Kem called the Atartumti, the plan of bringing heaven on earth, and how the serious people taught to him and other architects how to create the pyramids on, on this planet and how to move the energy of time and space through the pyramids so we could handle the portals of time. When I used to live there, the teachings of our whole way of thinking, our culture and our history was taught in one temple that we call the Mahat Kai. Mahat Kai was the place where we understood the doors through time to create the universe. That's what it meant, Mahat Kai. So in this temple, the women and men that were in charge of wisdom would teach us the first stages of how the architect of the universe would create every reality. 
Yahut was the one that settled the keys to understand how the realities were built, and his goal was to teach people how to create those realities and how to open those realities here on this planet. So that's why the civilization was split into different levels of consciousness too. The ones related to nature, the ones related to society, and the ones related to the divine. Those related to the divine were the descendants of the blue ones, of the twelve families. I was related to one of those families at that time, so what we had to do was to learn about everything in the divine. And that meant that we were willing to rule the society and we were willing to be the heads of the state of the of the of the society so that's why jahud said the ones that are going to rule the society are the ones that have to be more prepared to be in relation with every sphere because ruling at the time of atlantis was not about power Jahud and his brothers and sisters tried to build a new civilization that would go beyond the power. That's why all the preparation for the representative ones, the 12 families, was to be prepared in every emotion, in every part of their, of their bodies, how to rule their own power within, so they could be representatives of the universe on earth and not to be treated like gods. One of the first things that we had to understand was that we have not the power because we were chosen. Uh, we have the power because we are just a part of the universe that can understand the universe. So whoever has this ability has more responsibility than any other because responsibility was the key for, to, for the universe. The universe, the creation of God, the creation of the goddess, was to put there in nature everything to be balanced, everything to have harmony. So whoever takes over this harmony is not related to God or goddess. That's why the 12 families has to learn how to live in balance and harmony with all the environment, with every part of society, so we could be really the eyes of God and the goddess on earth. And to understand that, we were taught about the statements of the universe, everything that had created us. And so the first thing we had to learn was the sounds in which we could listen and understand every part of God and the goddess. We would learn that every aspect of the universe has a positive and a negative aspect, that everything has a female and a masculine aspect of reality. So that's the only way in which the universe can create new realities, through feminine and masculine aspects. That's why for us, the sun on the moon was not feminine or masculine. The sun has an aspect uh, that was feminine and an aspect that was masculine. For us, of course, was the two phases of the what Egyptians after that call Horus, the masculine aspect of God in the sun, and Sekhmet as the feminine aspect of the sun. Being also for the moon, 
she shed the feminine aspect and taught Yahut the masculine aspect of the moon. So for us, moon and sun were both father and mother within. This double aspect of every reality helped us to understand that we need to find the balance in order to create, that there was no feminine over masculine, there was no masculine over feminine, that both of them had to be in balance in order to create new realities. This helped us to understand that we have to respect every aspect of the universe in order to create new realities, that we cannot be in control of any part of the realities, we have to become both of them. So the teachings was to become beings so neutral that we could hold within the feminine and the masculine aspect in just oneself. That's why in ancient times we had not a word to describe she or he. We call all of them Nu, which were the ones that came from the sky to the earth. That was a, a pronunciation of feminine and masculine altogether, Nu. We had to understand that the creation of the whole universe was through one self that was understanding who he was, that was giving the truth to others, that was both of them in concept in one self, that could create new realities divided in many, that those many could go over every timeline and every space creating new realities and that those beings had to deliver to the universe the balance through the heart. And those, those aspects of the self was called Ammanenumotini. Ammanenumotini was the name of this God in expression. Ammanenumotini means I, you, he, she, us, you all, and they. These aspects was called like one being split in many. That's why we needed to understand the language to understand how or from which aspect of the universe we were talking about. For us, the first things to be learned were the exact words in order to learn how to talk about God. Jahud was very clear about this. Everything in the universe was created through an idea, but the idea was vibration. This idea, this mind of the universe, would be only expressed outside itself through vibration. This vibration would reach a rhythm in which these realities would be meeting and transforming once and again, and everything that exists in the universe will be created or transformed by the aspect of polarity. This polarity would help us generate all the realities that we have today. So that's why through generation we find the purpose of duality and this duality help us re recognize that everything is connected in the universe, that everything has a rhythm to follow, that everything comes from the vibration of this, of this expression from within and outside, and, that's, and that this outside is only exists, can only exist through the idea of the within. So. This process was known as the Mahasaham for us in the universe 
for us in in chem the m the portal through time h to the space s mahas and the coming back saham and this expression was divided in seven laws that every one of us had to learn how it worked these seven laws for us were held in the spiritual mind connected through the learning process so all of us were the only one spirit connecting to the learning process through seven laws in the middle that created the idea that we are all just one being trying to learn about itself and the way it does it is through creating an idea the first law the mind the idea of everything and then projecting this idea from within to outside which is the correspondence the second law and then generating this vibration in order to create this bond between between the inside and the outside which is vibration the third law then we have the fourth law which is rhythm this will have a rhythm that we call the wheel of time or karma dharma that goes through like a uh, through time and space like like the beat of a heart actually through that law jahud would say that if you are able to listen every heartbeat of every living being in the universe you would you would listen the music that holds everything working through time and space and if you balance your heartbeat to every heartbeat like if it is a clock in the universe you could reach and find the perfect amount of vibration to reach the very be- the, the very first beat the very first heartbeat so you could find the key to go through time that's why we needed to meditate in order to balance our fourth law of the universe which was the rhythm after that we would realize that everything beating in the universe would create a wave and this wave would move everything around so everything every cause has an effect and every effect has a cause that's the fifth law of of the universe and then we had the sixth one which was polarity in order to create those realities we need a uh, point A and a point B to go and to move forward and backward. So that movement would create the positive and the negative that creates the seventh law which is generation, the creation of new realities. These seven laws that he established were the seven laws that we had within in our own chakras. These seven laws were established through the consciousness of these other two ways of seeing the universe the eagle or the falcon that had all the information from above and the snake that had all the wisdom below so these two aspects of reality were taught to all cultures in the universe in the in in our in our planet so every culture every species of humans in this planet would know that we are the middle point of seven laws in between the knowledge of the falcon and the hawk and the wisdom of the snake and that's why every culture has these two aspects of 
the positive and the negative and the several laws in between to understand how the universe works. In Mahat Kai, we learned about these seven laws through vibration. He said it that in order to understand how everything works, we need to know the first words to understand it. So we have the people, the beings, which was the Ammanenumotini, the concept of God through all of us. And we had the dimensions of God, which was the vibration I am um, this vibration which had the nine aspects of the universe with the three breathing ham het hum were the representations for him of every aspect of God on earth. The twelve phases of the planet, the twelve constellations, the twelve chakras we have within, and the twelve aspects of the of God that we now may know with the name of Archangels. He said that every one of us was a tiny cell of an Archangel, which is an expression of God. So the 12 Archangels that we know today with different names like the most known Uriel, Michael, Gabriel, they are the different aspects or attributes of God, which is El. For all ancient cultures, God meant El, because for us the word El means the truth that is spoken. So the verb, the truth in, uh, in, 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 in blood, the truth in geometry was El. That's why all the related shapes of God was called something and L. These aspects were the ones that we had to learn and that we call in different ways in, in every culture. But in our culture, in the Kim culture, we divided it in the 12 aspects that we had to, uh, to learn from uh, every one of the schools that Jahud taught, created for us to learn. To each one of those schools, he attached a positive and a negative way of expression of God. So we had a priest and a priestess, a feminine and a masculine, working together in each one of those temples in order to help us understand the two concepts of reality. We have these 12 temples, these 12 phases of the reality, divided into 24. These 24 were the keys or the letters to understand that every reality was dual, that we needed both forces to understand how it worked. So every one of them has two gods, one god and one goddess, or one priest and one priestess, that represented the duality, and then one creation, which is the trinity. And the creation will represent the goal that every student would have to achieve in between those two points. For example, in the temples of light, we would have the trinity of Osiris and Isis with their child who was Horus. And this trinity, what helped us to understand was that Osiris was the seed of life, that Isis was the flower of life, 
and then in the middle we have the sun who was the creation the eye that could see everything created through the seed and the fruit or the flower of life and our goal in that temple was to learn how to become the seed and how make that seed to fertilize the flower and to create the fruit which would be the sun so our goal was to be like Horus on earth to be enlightened ones also for the darkness we had Seth the lord of darkness and we had Nephthys the ruler of the wisdom from the underground and both of them created death which was the transition in between life and death which was Anubis Hanabis he was the keeper of the souls Anubis was the one that we all had to look for because since we were born we were prepared to die so one of the teachings that we had to to do was to become our own rulers of death so if you rule your own death you become Anubis the concept of dying and through death you can enlighten yourself in the darkness so those aspects of Trinity were trying to be rich in these 12 temples in which we worked through love wisdom will earth fire water air here and now and the aspects of the sun the moon and the underground each temple has this duality of gods and in each temple we would learn a concept of the divine the first divine aspects were the HHH Hamhet Hum the ones related to the sun the moon and the earth these three concepts were the breathing aspects of wisdom the wisdom of the sun the knowledge of the moon and the the living proof the experience on earth these three teachings would talk about hech hach ihet which were the concepts of the eternity the concepts of eternity was to learn how the reality was eternal that the physical bodies they don't end they don't finish they just transform into other shapes that the energy also transforms in other shapes and the consciousness goes through all the shapes and transcend the material or the physical structures so we have to learn that everything was eternal that everything was an idea that flows through eternity so the main thing that we had to do was to live our lives like if it was a dream we were we were taught about how to how to see in darkness how to survive through dream how to create realities through night so that's why for a long period of our time we spend the our lives in night through night and in darkness places so we could recognize that all that is created is just a dream and if we become dreamers we can construct that reality around us this created a state of mind that makes us believe that we could do anything 
that realities were just a dream and that we can decide what to do in those dreams. All this process of knowledge that Yahud taught us to us was to understand that every reality in every part of the universe was bounded to us and that we were the only ones that could build the temple to let them all in and that we had the keys to open those doors of those temples. So for us, Yahud was not only the father of our civilization, he was also the father of our knowledge, of our wisdom, of that priest that helped us to understand how everything worked and that made us free from other gods and helped us to be our own gods and goddesses. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am your host and guide, Matias Estefano. In the next episode, we will discuss how the universe created religions to find itself. How did the universe create religions to find itself? I am your host and guide, Matias Stefano. In this episode, we will explore how different paths brings us to the same truth. In Atlantean times, the 12 families were like people who we used to ask for advice, and then we had this circle of people representing the different workers of the region and they were representing the spirit of the people. We call that the projections of gods. So each one of them had the face of an animal that was related to their work. And that's why in the times of disconnection, they start to honor those animals like they, if they were gods and the priests like if they were the gods himself. That brought the confusion of uh, animalistic religion and they started to honor the concepts of the universe in a different way. As Yahud said, the goal for humans is to become gods on this planet, to become the portals through time and space in flesh, in blood. And that is why the main preparation that we had was to create the patterns within that could help us enlighten in life. The purpose was not to reach the spirit, it was to allow the spirit to live in this reality. So those who were able to open the doors to the spirit to this reality without willing to escape this reality were the enlightened ones, those who were the mirrors for thousands of people to understand that they were sent here as messengers of this divine on earth. 
There were a lot of people that accomplished this divine on this planet. There were a lot of people that reached the enlightenment in this world. And they were the people that could live at the same level the suffering and the pleasure. To be balanced in all this process of enlightenment, you needed to put all the darkness together and transcend the darkness through transfiguration. And this transfiguration, it was the code of enlightenment in matter that people like Krishna, like Jesus Christ, had connected. The words that connect them all was the messengers. And messengers, the ones that are here bringing the voice of the universe, the emissaries were said like Christa or Krish. These are the words in which ancient language would call those who were sent to show God. So that's why many of the names that were used to describe those who had been enlightened are similar in history. When we start to reach the truth of the universe, we may ask ourselves which is the best way or what is the truth or what is the path or what is the method we could use to get to the truth. But the truth is that there are so many ways to get to the core of the universe that everything is really connected. Then there is no one way to go and to find the truth. There is many. In the ancient times, we used to say that everything stick and connected like a network. So for us, everything was waved by a spider that connect every different path in the universe in the same network. And that helps us to understand that everything really is connected and there is no one path towards the core that is more important than others. For us, the universe was a womb that was created in realities. So the spiders were related to the feminine. The feminine aspect of the universe were these fractions and rays of reality that we related with the parts of the spider. And the main core, the black hole, was this black part of the spider. And the many eyes that this animal has was related to all the eyes in the stars that could see us from above. So the main image of the spider, even if it's a little bit scary, the spider was not something seen like something bad. It was seen like these shadows of reality that are hidden the precious seed of reality covered by this scary face so nobody could touch it. It's like if you want to protect the most holy shape of the universe, what we understood is that you need to cover it with a horrible face so we don't touch it unless we recognize that it is just a shape taking care of something really enlightened within. So that's why for ancient people, all the shapes that maybe uh, fear, uh, that, that maybe we fear today and that scare us, for them was just the shapes that were taking care of the main information, wisdom of the universe. So that's why the spider for us was the code that 
connects us all and we call those beings the spiders of the galaxy, the spiders of the universe. And that's why for women it was important to learn how to weave because when they were weaving the silk, when they were weaving the clothes, they would put all the patterns of reality of the universe hidden and shown in the structures that they were using daily so they could always remember that we were created by these spiders, the mothers of the universe, weaving the clothes that we call now the body's nature, our planet. That is why the most ancient cultures honor the spider and they received the information from the spiders, like the Hopi people with the ants and the spider people that came from the underground and, and the outer space that taught them how to wave, how to contact, how to connect every part of the universe through this network of connections in the mind of God. We would learn in the past that the reality was this network, this uh, spider web that connected the waves of time and the lines of space crossing the time. And we could see that the space through time would be 12 lines that connect all the, the timelines. So if we have this network of time going like these waves in the shape of circles, the lines that cross those circles would be 12. Six positive and six negative that crosses all the times. And these are the shapes or the aspects in which the spider, the consciousness, would see everything, would connect and contact every time and every space. These are called the aspects of God. And God was the one that vibrates the truth. That's why the spider feels the vibration of every one of its aspects surrounding her and surrounding him, it. And that's why vibration is the language that connects us all. Because we understood that this comparison of the spider with the universe was the accurate way of understanding how vibration works and connects every spot in the universe through time and space. So this 12 would be the vibrations of it who speaks the truth, who vibrates the truth. And that for ancient languages is the word El. El means the truth that is spoken. And because of God was this truth spoken, the verb, the first vibration, the first singing. So every aspect would be a different aspect that was spoken by truth. These different aspects we call now in Hebrew language, like the names of archangels. Archangels means the most important messengers. Arche, coming from the words in Greek, meaning the powerful or the highest one, and angel, the messenger. So the highest messengers or the most powerful were the different aspects in which the word El was expressed in the universe, which were 12 of them. Some of the most known that we use today was uh, Michael, Uriel, Gabriel, that are the vibrations that represent Michael, who, like God, who, like the truth, 
the Uriel, the light of God, Gabriel, the strength uh, of God, and many others that represented the positive and the negative aspects of this creation. One of the most known and that is related to our thoughts is Raphael. Raphael means the physician, the, the, the healing of God. And this aspect was in, incarnated in everyone that was working with the body, with the, uh, with the physics, with, with the healing process of our matter and the third dimensional realities. So that's why the aspect of Raphael, even today, the physicians has the symbol of Raphael being the doctor of the universe and incarnated through the image of Hermes, which was the priest of medicine in Atlantan times, Chahut. So, archangels are not beings with human shape. They are aspects that goes through all the universe and that holds the vibration of the 12 aspects of reality. So, we are all projections of those archangels. We are all messengers of those first 12 spaces that fill the universe. In order to leave or let the spirit to come to the world in flesh and blood, you need to open the doors in the proper harmony. And to be harmonious, you need to have the perfect vibration. And that is why in your own blood, in your own DNA, in the cells, in every organ, you need to be balanced and aligned with what you do, what you feel, what you think. And the vibration to accomplish that was what Jahud and other people from ancient Atlantis, Atlantis thought to, to, to reach through the chantings, through the meditation, through the symbols that were spoken, the word of the truth. And those knowledge were taught by the Arturians, who were the beings in the Confederation that knew about physics, that knew about how to transform realities through sound. And that is why the blue ones are still alive in those who accomplished the enlightenment through the vibration of blood, or the vibration in the DNA. When a human being accomplished to open all the portals in matter to the spirit, is what we call enlightenment. And it's the moment when you feel uh, so full of, of happiness, so full of love, that you could love unconditionally everything you can feel everything as a part of you you forget of who you are and you become everything so this process of, of enlightenment is when you feel the highest vibration in the third dimension when you feel fulfilled in the third dimension and you are not willing to leave the third dimension but you are willing to feel everything in the third dimension, just one moment, that connects you with the transcendence of the third dimension. And then you go to the fourth dimension instantaneously when you recognize that you 
are the process of everything that happened, that is happening and that will happen. You can see everything from every perspective. You can see that you are the one that expressed that experience that is integrating and that transcend every process. So time and space start to be bounded and you feel it all in just here and now. And that's the concept of eternity. When you accomplish the here and now, the four pillars of time and space start to become just one and you can see them all from just one spot. This is like stop looking from outside the atom and look the atom from within. It's like looking every creation surrounding you from the spot that connects all the realities. And that's the fifth dimension. So in order to go to the fifth dimension, a being shouldn't go up to the heavens. The being should go deep into the atom structure to see the electrons, to see the light that creates every matter that we are in. So that's the enlightenment, when all the patterns of reality are aligned in the same vibration and everything that was a chaos just shine in the same perspective. So it's like putting all the colors of a rainbow in just one light again, in one just structure, which is white. This ray of light makes the enlightenment possible and you can only achieve that enlightenment through the third dimension because the only way to see every perspective and have wisdom of that is if you had experienced every perspective. That's why the, the ascended masters that we call now from, from who we receive information from other levels of consciousness, they are the spectrum of those people that used to live in the planet that had accomplished the enlightenment of the whole process in time and space. The ascended masters that live in the fifth dimension, they are not up, they are within, so deep within that you can see the light of every electron vibrating in the same pattern of harmony. Fifth dimension is to see the coherence in everything and that's why they become masters because they accomplish to learn everything in the matter and now they are able to teach to show by experience by showing their own actions how it is to be enlightened there are many masters in the fifth dimension that we relate with people that was that were alive like Jesus, Sanat Kumara, they, were, they are just expressions of the fifth dimension of the people that was alive in the third dimension. They are not someone, someone or something that is higher than us, they just vibrate faster than us. We live in the past, we live in the third dimension, which is the strongest and the lowest vibration. And when as, as faster you vibrate, you accomplish to see how electrons move through time and space and you can see all the realities connected by them. So that's why in the fifth dimension everything is light because you are seeing everything moving as the same fast as you are. That's why they can see the future, that's why they can see everything and they can teach us or show us the best way in which we could learn about how to live properly in matter.
In order to become enlightened beings in the fifth dimension, we needed to learn every step in the third and the fourth dimension. And that is why the ancient ones created the path of enlightenment, the path of initiation, in which every school of knowledge in Europe, in Middle East, in Africa, in, in America, they would have to learn everything of how to live properly in this reality, in the third dimension, so we could transcend our idea of ourselves through time, and that would allow us to get into the information of the fifth dimension. Bringing the fifth dimension, the spiritual enlightened being, into this material world was the main goal of the enlightenment schools, the teaching of how to become uh, spiritual beings living this physical experience. And in order to do that, we needed to be recreated once and again in different levels of consciousness. So we had a purpose. Our purpose was the masculine aspect. We need to go to light. We need to go to this goal. We need to go to get this information. So what we had to do was to go straight to the main information and we needed the gods, the aspect of the sun, the aspect of the teachers, like the goals that we had to achieve in every learning, in every teaching, and that would be the steps of evolution that we had created. But in every step we needed to be recreated, reborn again. So we needed to be born, experience, and die. Reborn, experience, and die. This whole process was a feminine process. And that's why if we had an idea of the masculine process of where to go, the feminine aspect would shape us in different levels of consciousness, trying to show us the different ways in which we could express the divine on earth. That's why the womb, the mother, was the most important structure to help us to transform every idea of ourselves. We needed to die once and again to, re to be reborn to see different aspects. And that's why the codes of the Mother, the Divine Mother on Earth, were so important for every culture. And there were so many mothers to help us born in different aspects or different ways. We needed to face darkness and that's why the priestess Neftis would teach us how to go through darkness and be born into darkness. And then we have Isis, the mother of light, who would teach us how to be born in light. Then we have the masters of power. So that's when we found Sehmet, the goddess of light of the sun. So we need to, to empower ourselves, but also to learn about the sweetness and the love and how to take care of our sons. And that was the image of Hathor. Then we needed to learn about the seven laws of the universe. And that's the order of everything, which was Mahat. Through Mahat, Sheshet, the priestess of wisdom, would teach us how to go through each one of those levels. The mother of the sky, the mother of earth, the mother that we call Ina, they were teaching us about how we were bounded in earth, about the plants, about the creation part of the universe. And that is why we needed to 
live and express different ways of mothers in every stage of our learning process in these schools. Because in order to become gods and have a purpose for our creation, what we needed to do was to become goddesses because to create, we needed to be the womb. We needed to know how to create within ourselves. And that's why the mother was so divided in different aspects so we could learn about all the different perspectives of creation. The fertility was represented by what we call the seed and the flower. And this aspect of the feminine was Bather, who was the feminine aspect of fertility and the creation of a new spiritual being being born in reality. And the masculine aspect of this goddess was Baphomet. Baphomet was this shape of a being that united every aspect of the mothers and the cows and the sheep that would represent all the milk that was needed to fertilize the womb of the mother. So this being was taken like the one being able to download information of the spirit into the darkness, into the matter, so the spirit could be born. Of course, through time, the shapes of these gods, when we become to be monotheistic, these shapes of, the, uh, of, the, of fertility start to be like the shape of the demon, because for monotheism, the women were the speakers with nature, so they were they, they were talking with the with things that has not relation with God who was in the sky. So everything that was from the womb, from the earth, was connected to the underground with the darkness. And that's why all the shapes of Bather and Baphomet were taken as the messengers of the evil, the messengers of the underground, when they were indeed the feminine and the masculine aspects of fertility and the doors for the spirit to come and be born on earth. The first schools of wisdom were trying to teach that all the universe only spoke one language, which was vibration. And it doesn't matter which name you put to any of those levels of consciousness. If you are saying the truth, if you are talking about the same stuff, about the same information, so you will reach the core of reality. So that is why it doesn't matter which name, in which culture we call the gods, the Nephilim, the Elohim, the archangels, it doesn't matter which gods we believed in, if it's animalistic, polytheism, monotheism, all the aspects of God are all connected through time and space in the same connection, in the same, in the same path, which is the self, to connect with the core of reality, with the truth. So from the very core of the universe to all the network that was created, every shape, every distortion are just different shapes and paths 
towards the self. So it doesn't matter in which story, in which God, in which school you believe or you follow, you will all arrive to the same spot. You will all arrive to the same core, which is the I am, which is the self, which is the very core of every reality. Is the self expressing itself in many and different ways. So if you understand the universe as a big sphere and the core, the main pattern is the one that connects every spot in the sphere, it doesn't matter which path you take to the core. If you go around, if you go straight to the middle, you will cross with many other perspectives of realities or you will not cross anyone going straight to the core. But all of them you have the worth. All of them are different shapes of the same reality. So there's no a true path. There's no a path you have to take and there's no one only truth you have to follow. You have to follow your own truth and through the different schools of learning, different ways to understand different languages, different perspectives, all of them will bring you to the same core of the reality. So here in planets like this ones, we have to embrace of our civilization of Kim. This is Thoth, architect of Atlantis. Dahut was what the name that represented the one who was balanced through time. Jahud was a person. He was born, first of all, in Middle East, and he was sent to Atlantis to organize the whole civilization. He was part of one of the 12 families, and he kind of was one of the rulers of the system at that time. Even though the system was not ruled by kings or by men gods, the 12 families were like this system of wise people to whom all humans would ask what to do. And he was the one that represented the most important of all the other wise people of the 12 families that everyone in the families would ask to him what to do and how to construct, build, transform our realities. The first priests and priestesses used to teach everything through stones, crystals, and vibration. But when we began to be disconnected to it, we needed to print it, to write it. And that's why we started to use papyrus to write down all the information and to use hieroglyphics, hieratics, letters and sounds imprinted on paper holy, and then rock. Writing, hieroglyphics These created the, the idea that Yahud was still alive in those who learned how to write, how to transcend information through the words. And because of the papyrus was in the river, and we harvest this papyrus to write the knowledge, we related that the bird, the ibis, the bird that was taking care of the papyrus in the river, was the symbol that connect the wisdom of Yahud. And that's why all the animalistic people, the, the ones that believed in the nature gods, they start to relate the knowledge of, of Jahud with the Ibis, and that's why we have this god with the Ibis head. In Egypt time, we started to call Jahud like Thoth, and then for Greek people, they call it Hermes. So the symbols of Hermes was still alive, and is still alive in medicine, because he was the first one to help us understand that the doors of realities were in our bodies. 
organs, blood, DNA, and that is why the symbol of Hermes was the snake. In ancient times, the keeper of the wisdom was the snake. So the snake has the two tools, the positive and the negative, that could kill us or could heal us. So that's why the medicians, the physicians, they used to use this stick to hold the snake and to take the venom so they could make poisons to heal. So that's why the symbol of the snake around this caduceum that represented all the chakras and the wisdom of every level of consciousness was the symbol to create the poisons to heal the humanity to heal the bodies to so we could open the portals of wisdom within ourselves and that's why the caduceum is still the symbol of hermes and the symbol of medicine in every culture jahud was the representative of all the builders of realities on earth he was the human that descended directly from the blue ones from the arcturians and he was one of the priests that could live the most that whoever was in the temples, whoever was uh, creating our our civilization in Atlantean times, in Kim time, everyone would know him because he was the one preparing everyone through hundreds of years. That is why when we as Hethian people, the Atlantean people, we understood our purpose on Earth, he was the one chosen to build the network physically so we could download all the information from the highest spheres here on this planet. Jahud, for our history, he was like this mentor that designed our country, that designed our way of thinking, that he was the, the guide that told us how to create what for all of us in that moment was our daily life. He was the guide of the families coming through the Mediterranean Sea to live in Egypt, to live in the Nile. And he was kind of the one that decided the role and the place that every one of us would have along the Nile. His brothers and sisters were were living all around the River Nile from the very south to the north and they would keep the idea that he built about how to create a proper society in order to contact the higher levels of consciousness in different spheres, in different dimensions. He kind of made this plan that we in Kem called the Adartumti, the plan of bringing heaven on earth, and how the serious people taught to him and other architects how to create the pyramids on, on this planet, and how to move the energy of time and space through the pyramids so we could handle the portals of time. When I used to live there, the teachings of our whole way of thinking, our culture and our history was taught in one temple that we called the Mahatkai. Mahatkai was the place where we understood the doors through time to create the universe. That's what it meant, Mahatkai. So in this temple, the women and men that were in charge of wisdom would teach us the first stages of how the architect of the universe would create every reality. Jahud was the one that settled the keys to understand how the realities were built, and his goal was to teach people how to create those realities and how to open those realities here on this planet. So that's why the civilization was split into different levels of consciousness too, the ones related to nature, the ones related to society, and the ones related to the divine. Those related to the divine were the descendants of the blue ones, of the 12 families. 
I was related to one of those families at that time. So what we had to do was to learn about everything in the divine. And that meant that we were willing to rule the society and we were willing to be the heads of the state of the of the of the society. So that's why Jahud said the ones that are going to rule the society are the ones that have to be more prepared to be in relation with every sphere. Because ruling at the time of Atlantis was not about power. Jahud and his brothers and sisters tried to build a new civilization that would go beyond the power. That's why all the preparation for the representative ones, the 12 families, was to be prepared in every emotion, in every part of their, of their bodies, how to rule their own power within. So they could be representatives of the universe on Earth and not to be treated like gods. One of the first things that we had to understand was that we have not the power because we were chosen. Uh, we have the power because we are just a part of the universe that can understand the universe. So whoever has this ability has more responsibility than any other because responsibility was the key for, for the universe. The universe, the creation of God, the creation of the goddess was to put there in nature everything to be balanced, everything to have harmony. So whoever takes over this harmony is not related to God or goddess. That's why the two families has to learn how to live in balance and harmony with all the environment, with every part of society, so we could be really the eyes of God and the goddess on earth. And to understand that, we were taught about the statements of the universe, everything that had created us. And so the first thing we had to learn was the sounds in which we could listen and understand every part of God and goddess. We would learn that every aspect of the universe has a positive and a negative aspect, that everything has a female and a masculine aspect of reality. So that's the only way in which the universe can create new realities, through feminine and masculine aspects. That's why for us, the sun on the moon was not feminine or masculine. The sun has an aspect that, that was feminine and an aspect that was masculine. For us, of course, was the two phases of the what Egyptians after that called Horus, the masculine aspect of God in the sun, and Sekhmet as the feminine aspect of the sun. Being also for the moon, she shed the feminine aspect and taught Jahut the masculine aspect of the moon. So for us, moon and sun were both father and mother within. This double aspect of every reality helped us to understand that we need to find the balance in order to create, that there was no feminine over masculine, there was no masculine over feminine, that both of them had to be in balance in order to create new realities. This helped us to understand that we have to respect every aspect of the universe in order to create new realities, that we cannot be in control of any part of the realities. We have to become both of them. So the teachings was to become beings so neutral that we could hold within the feminine and the masculine aspect in just oneself. That's why in ancient times we have not a word to describe she or he. We call all of them nu, which were the ones that came from the sky to the earth. That was a, a pronunciation of feminine and masculine altogether, nu. We had to understand that the creation of the whole 
universe was the one self that was understanding who he was, that was giving the truth to others, that was both of them in concept in one self, that could create new realities divided in many, that those many could go over every timeline and every space creating new realities, and that those beings had to deliver to the universe the balance through the heart. And those those aspects of the self was called Ammanenumotini. Ammanenumotini was the name of this God in expression. Ammanenumotini means I, you, he, she, us, you all, and they. This aspects was called like one being split in many that's why we needed to understand the language to understand how or from which aspect of the universe we were talking about for us the first things to be learned were the exact words in order to learn how to talk about god jahud was very clear about this everything in the universe was created through an idea but the idea was vibration this idea, this mind of the universe, would be only expressed outside itself through vibration. This vibration would reach a rhythm in which these realities would be meeting and transforming once and again, and everything that exists in the universe will be created or transformed by the aspect of polarity. This polarity would help us generate all the realities that we have today. So that's why through generation we find the purpose of duality, and this duality help us re recognize that everything is connected in the universe, that everything has a rhythm to follow, that everything comes from the vibration of this, of this expression from within and outside, and that, and that this outside is only exists, can only exist through the idea of the within. So this process was known as the Mahasaham for us in the universe, for us in, in Chem, the M, the portal through time, H, to the space. So, Mahas and the coming back Saham and this expression was divided in seven laws that every one of us had to learn how it worked. These seven laws for us were held in the spiritual mind connected through the learning process. So all of us were the only one spirit connecting to the learning process through seven laws in the middle. That created the idea that we are all just one being trying to learn about itself, and the way it does it is through creating an idea, the first law, the mind, the idea of everything, and then projecting this idea from within to outside, which is the correspondence, the second law, and then generating this vibration in order to create this bond between, between the inside and the outside, which is vibration, the third law. Then we have the fourth law, which is rhythm, this will have a rhythm that we call the wheel of time or karma dharma that goes through like a uh, through time and space like like the beat of a heart actually through that law jahud would say that if you are able to listen every heartbeat of every living being in the universe you would you would listen the music that holds everything working through time and space and if you balance your heartbeat through every heartbeat like if it is a clock in the universe, you could reach and find the perfect amount of vibration to reach the very the, the very first beat, the very first heartbeat, so you could find the key to go through time. That's why we needed to meditate in order to balance our 
fourth law of the universe, which was the rhythm. After that, we would realize that everything beating in the universe would create a wave, and this wave would move everything around. So everything, every cause has an effect, and every effect has a cause. That's the fifth law of, of the universe. And then we had the sixth one, which was polarity. In order to create those realities, we need a point A and a point B to go and to move forward and backward. So that movement would create the positive and the negative that creates the seventh law, which is generation, the creation of new realities. These seven laws that he established were the seven laws that we had within in our own chakras. These seven laws were established through the consciousness of these other two ways of seeing the universe. The eagle or the falcon that had all the information from above and the snake that had all the wisdom below. So these two aspects of reality were taught to all cultures in the universe, in, the, in, in, our, in our planet. So every culture, every species of humans in this planet would know that we are the middle point of seven laws in between the knowledge of the falcon and the hawk and the wisdom of the snake. And that's why every culture has these two aspects of the positive and the negative and the seven laws in between to understand how the universe works. In Mahat Kai, we learn about these seven laws through vibration. He said it that in order to understand how everything works, we need to know the first words to understand it. So we have the people, the beings, which was the Amanemotini, the concept of God through all of us. And we had the dimensions of God, which was the vibration ion. This vibration, which had the nine aspects of the universe with the three breathing, ham, head, hum, were the representations for him of every aspect of God on Earth. The 12 phases of the planet, the 12 constellations, the 12 chakras we have within, and the 12 aspects of, the, of God that we now may know with the name of Archangels. He said that every one of us was... Uh, tiny cell of an archangel which is an expression of god so the 12 archangels that we know today with different names like the most known uriel michael gabriel they are the different aspects or attributes of god which is el for all ancient cultures god meant el because for us the word el means the truth that is spoken so the verb the truth in, uh, in, in, in blood, the truth in geometry was El. That's why all the related shapes of God was called something and El. These aspects were the ones that we had to learn and that we call in different ways in, in every culture. But in our culture, in the Kem culture, we divided it in the 12 aspects that we had to, uh, to learn from uh, every one of the schools that Jahud taught created for us to learn. To each one of those schools, he attached a positive and a negative way of expression of God. So we had a priest and a priestess, a feminine and a masculine, working together in each one of those temples in order to help us understand the two concepts of reality. We have these 12 temples, these 12 phases of the reality, divided into 24. These 24 were the keys or the letters to understand that every reality was dual 
that we needed both forces to understand how it worked. So every one of them has two gods, one god and one, and one goddess, or one priest and one priestess that represented the duality and then one creation, which is the trinity. And the creation will represent the goal that every student would have to achieve in between those two points. For example, in the temples of light, we would have the trinity of Osiris and Isis with their child who was Horus. And this trinity, what helped us to understand was that Osiris was the seed of life, that Isis was the flower of life, and then in the middle we have the sun, who was the creation, the eye, that could see everything created through the seed and the fruit or the flower of life. And our goal in that temple was to learn how to become the seed and how make that seed to fertilize the flower and to create the fruits, which would be the sun. So our goal was to be like Horus on Earth, to be enlightened ones. Also for the darkness, we had Seth, the Lord of Darkness, and we had Neftis, the ruler of the wisdom from the underground, and both of them created death, which was the transition in between life and death, which was Anubis, Hanubis. He was the keeper of the souls. Anubis was the one that we all had to look for, because since we were born, we were prepared to die. So one of the teachings that we had to, to do was to become our own rulers of death. So if you rule your own death, you become Anubis, the concept of die, and through death, you can enlighten yourself in the darkness. So those aspects of Trinity were trying to be reached in these 12 temples in which we worked through love, wisdom, will, earth, fire, water, air, here and now. And the aspects of the sun, the moon, and the underground. Each temple has this duality of gods, and in each temple we would learn a concept of the divine. The first divine aspects were the HHH, Hamhet Hum, the ones related to the sun, the moon, and the earth. These three concepts were the breathing aspects of wisdom, the wisdom of the sun, the knowledge of the moon, and the, the living proof experience on earth. These three teachings would talk about Hech, Hach, Ihet, which were the concepts of the eternity. The concepts of eternity was to learn how the reality was eternal. That the physical bodies they don't end they don't finish they just transform into other shapes that the energy also transforms in other shapes and the consciousness goes through all the shapes and transcend the material or the physical structures so we have to learn that everything was eternal that everything was an idea that flows through eternity so the main thing that we had to do was to live our lives like if it was a dream we were we were taught about how to how to see in darkness, how to survive through dream, how to create realities through night. So that's why for a long period of our time, we spend the, our lives in night, through night, and in darkness places, so we could recognize that all that is created is just a dream. And if we become dreamers, we can construct that reality around us. This created a state of mind 
that makes us believe that we could do anything, that realities were just a dream and that we can decide what to do in those dreams. All this process of knowledge that Yahud taught us to us was to understand that every reality in every part of the universe was bounded to us and that we were the only ones that could build the temple to let them all in and that we had the keys to open those doors of those temples. So for us, Yahud was not only the father of our civilization, he was also the father of our knowledge, of our wisdom, of that priest that helped us to understand how everything worked and that made us free from other gods and helped us to be our own gods and goddesses. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am your host and guide, Matias Estefano. In the next episode, we will discuss how the universe created religions to find itself. Wow, what a great show. It's amazing. Gotta publish that tomorrow morning. Six oh five. Intro to Polaris Project on Human Trafficking and Thoth Architect of Atlantis. Father of knowledge. How did the universe create religions to find itself? I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In this episode, we will explore how different paths brings us to the same truth. In Atlantan times, the 12 families were like people who we used to ask for advice, and then we had this circle of people representing the different workers of the region, and they were representing the spirit of the people. We call that the projections of gods. So each one of them had the face of an animal that was related to their work, and that's why in the times of disconnection, they start to honor those animals like they, if they were gods, and the priests like if they were the gods themselves. That brought the confusion of uh, animalistic religion, and they started to honor the concepts of the universe in a different way. As Yahud said, the goal for humans is to become gods on this planet, to become the portals through time and space in flesh, in blood. And that is why the main preparation that we had was to create the patterns within that could help us enlighten in life. The purpose was not to reach the spirit, it was to allow the spirit to live in this reality. So those who were able to open the doors to the spirit to this reality without willing to escape this reality were the enlightened ones, those who were the mirrors for thousands of people to understand that they were sent here as messengers of this divine on earth. There were a lot of people that accomplished this divine understanding. There were a lot of people that reached enlightenment in this world. And they were the people that could live at the same level, the suffering and the pleasure. To be balanced in all this process of enlightenment, you needed to put all the darkness together and transcend the darkness through transfiguration. And this transfiguration, it was the code of enlightenment in matter that people like Krishna, like Jesus Christ, had connected. The words that connect them all was the messengers. 
and messengers, the ones that are here bringing the voice of the universe, the emissaries, were saying like Christa or Krish. These are the words in which ancient language would call those who were sent to show God. So that's why many of the names that were used to describe those who had been enlightened are similar in history. When we start to reach the truth of the universe, we may ask ourselves, which is the best way, or what is the truth, or what is the path, or what is the method we could use to get to the truth. But the truth is that there are so many ways to get to the core of the universe, that everything is really connected. And there is no one way to go and to find the truth. There's many. In the ancient times, we used to say that everything is sticky and connected like a network. So for us, everything was waved by a spider that connected every different path in the universe in the same network. And that helps us to understand that everything really is connected and there's no one path towards the core that is more important than others. For us, the universe was a womb that was created in realities. So the spiders were related to the feminine. The feminine aspect of the universe were these fractions and rays of reality that we related with the bottom of the spider and the main core the black hole was this black part of the spider and the many eyes that this animal has was related to all the eyes in the stars that could see us from above so the main image of the spider even if it's a little bit scary the spider was not something seen like something bad it was seen like these shadows of reality that are hidden, the precious seed of reality covered by this scary face so nobody could touch it. It's like if you want to protect the most holy shape of the universe, what we understood is that you need to cover it with a horrible face so we don't touch it unless we recognize that it is just a shape taking care of something really enlightened within. So that's why for ancient people, all the shapes that maybe that fear that that maybe we fear today and that scare us for them was just the shapes that were taking care of the main information wisdom of the universe so that's why the spider for us was the code that connects us all and we call those beings the spiders of the galaxy the spiders of the universe and that's why for women it was important to learn how to weave because when they were weaving the silk when they were weaving the clothes they would put all the patterns of reality of the universe hidden and shown in the structures that they were using daily so they could always remember that we were created by these spiders the mothers of the universe weaving the clothes that we call now the bodies nature our planet that is why the most ancient cultures honor the spider and they received the information from the spiders, like the Hopi people with the ants and the spider people that came from the underground and, and the outer space that taught them how to wave, how to contact, how to connect every part of the universe through this network of connections in the mind of God. We would learn in the past that ah. the reality was this network, this uh, spider web that connected the waves of time and the lines of space across the time and we could see that the space through time would be 
12 lines that connect all the, the timelines. So if we have this network of time going like these waves in the shape of circles, the lines that cross those circles would be 12. Six positive and six negative that crosses all the times. And these are the shapes or the aspects in which the spider, the consciousness, would see everything, would connect and contact every time and every space. These are called the aspects of God. And God was the one that vibrates the truth. That's why the spider feels the vibration of every one of its aspects surrounding her and surrounding him, it. And that's why vibration is the language that connects us all. Because we understood that this cooperation of the spider with the universe was the accurate way of understanding how vibration works and connects <laughs> every spot of the universe through time and space. So this 12 would be the vibrations of it who speaks the truth, who vibrates the truth. And that for ancient languages is the word El. El means the truth that is spoken. And because of God was this truth spoken, the verb, the first vibration, the first singing, so every aspect would be a different aspect that was spoken by truth. These different aspects we call now in Hebrew language, like the names of archangels. Archangels means the most important messengers. Arche, coming from the words in Greek, meaning the powerful or the highest one, and angel, the messenger. So the highest messengers or the most powerful were the different aspects in which the word El was expressed in the universe, which were 12 of them. Some of the most known that we use today was uh, Michael, Uriel, Gabriel, that are the vibrations that represent Michael, who, like God, who, like the truth, the Uriel, the light of God, Gabriel, the strength uh, of God, and many others that represented the positive and the negative aspects of this creation. One of the most known and that is related to our thoughts is Raphael. Raphael means the physician, the, the, the healing of God. And this aspect was in, incarnated in everyone that was working with the body, with the, uh, with the physics, with, with the healing process of our matter and the third dimensional realities. So that's why the aspect of Raphael, even today, the physicians has the symbol of Raphael being the doctor of the universe and incarnated through the image of Hermes, which was the priest of medicine in Atlantan times. So, archangels are not beings with human shape. They are aspects that go through all the universe and that holds the vibration of the 12 aspects of reality. So, we are all projections of those archangels. We are all messengers of those first 12 spaces that fill the universe. In order to leave or let the spirit to come to the world, flesh and blood, you need to open the doors in the proper harmony. And to be harmonious, you need to have the perfect vibration. And that is why in your own blood, in your own DNA, in the cells, in every organ, you need to be balanced and aligned with what you do, what you feel, what you think. And the vibration to accomplish that was what Jahud and other people from ancient Atlantis, Atlantis thought to 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 reach through
through the chantings, through the meditation, through the symbols that were spoken, the word of the truth. And those knowledge were taught by the Arcturians, who were the beings in the confederation that knew about physics, that knew about how to transform realities through sound. And that is why the blue ones are still alive in those who accomplished the enlightenment through the vibration of blood or the vibration in the DNA. When a human being accomplished to open all the portals in matter to the spirit, is what we call enlightenment. And it's the moment when you feel so full of, of happiness, so full of love, that you could love unconditionally everything. You can feel everything as a part of you. You forget of who you are and you become everything. So this process of, of enlightenment is when you feel the highest vibration in the third dimension, when you feel fulfilled in the third dimension, and you are not willing to leave the third dimension, but you're willing to feel everything in the third dimension in just one moment. That connects you with the transcendence of the third dimension. And then you go to the fourth dimension instantaneously when you recognize that you are the process of everything that happened, that is happening and that will happen. You can see everything from every perspective. You can see that you are the one that expressed that experience that is integrated and that transcends every process. So time and space start to be bounded and you feel it all in just here and now. And that's the concept of eternity. When you accomplish the here and now, the four pillars of time and space start to become just one and you can see them all from just one spot. This is like stop looking from outside the atom and look the atom from within. It's like looking every creation surrounding you from the spot that connects all the realities. And that's the fifth dimension. So in order to go to the fifth dimension, a being shouldn't go up to the heavens. The being should go deep into the atom structure to see the electrons, to see the light that creates every matter that we are in. So that's the enlightenment, when all the patterns of reality are aligned in the same vibration and everything that was a chaos just shine in the same perspective. So it's like putting all the colors of a rainbow in just one light again, in one just structure, which is white. This ray of light makes the enlightenment possible and you can only achieve that enlightenment through the third dimension because the only way to see every perspective and have wisdom of that is if you had experienced every perspective that's why the the ascended masters that we call now from from who we receive information from other levels of consciousness they are the spectrum of those people that used to live in the planet that had accomplished the enlightenment of the whole process in time and space the ascended masters that live in the fifth dimension, they are not up, they are within, so deep within that you can see the light of every electron vibrating in the same pattern of harmony. Fifth dimension is to see the coherence in everything, and that's why they become masters, because they accomplish to learn everything in the matter, and now they are able to teach, to show by experience, by showing their own actions, how it is to be enlightened. There are many masters in the fifth dimension that we relate with people that was that were alive, like Jesus, Sarat Kumara. They were they are just expressions 
of the fifth dimension of the people that was alive in the third dimension they are not somewhat someone or something that is higher than us they just vibrate faster than us we live in the past we live in the third dimension which is the strongest and the lowest vibration and when as as faster you vibrate you accomplish to see how electrons move through time and space and you can see all the realities connected by them so that's why in the fifth dimension everything is light because you are seeing everything moving as the same fast as you are that's why they can see the future that's why they can see everything and they can teach us or show us the best way in which we could learn about how to live properly in matter in order to become enlightened beings in the fifth dimension we needed to learn every step in the third and the fourth dimension and that is why the ancient ones created the path of enlightenment the path of initiation in which every school of knowledge in europe in middle east in africa in, in america they would have to learn everything of how to live properly in this reality in the third dimension so we could transcend our idea of ourselves through time and that would allow us to get into the information of the fifth dimension bringing the fifth dimension the spiritual enlightened being into this material world was the main goal of the enlightenment schools the teaching of how to become uh, spiritual beings living this physical experience and in order to do that we needed to be recreated once and again in different levels of consciousness so we had a purpose our purpose was the masculine aspect we need to go to light we need to go to this goal we need to go to get this information so what we had to do was to go straight to the main information and we needed the gods the aspect of the sun the aspect of the teachers like the goals that we had to achieve in every learning and every teaching and that would be the steps of evolution that we had created but in every step we needed to be recreated reborn again so we needed to be born experience and die reborn experience and die this whole process was a feminine process and that's why if we had an idea of the masculine process of where to go the feminine aspect would shape us in different levels of consciousness trying to show us the different ways in which we could express the divine on earth that's why the womb the mother was the most important structure to help us to transform every idea of ourselves we needed to die once and again to, re to be reborn to see different aspects and that's why the codes of the mother the divine mother on earth were so important for every culture and there were so many mothers to help us born in different Oh, <clears throat> That's fucking great.